Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the LA Meekly podcast. I hope you guys had a good month. This month, we're going to be talking about orange groves, and we really outdid ourselves with research this April time. Fools! Mm. It's going to be on Central Avenue. Wait. Are you serious? I did my research on these damn groves. April Fools, you're going to look like an idiot. Daniel, I had surgery on my spleen. They found a crayon on there. I did all my research for my recovery room. I worked through the pain. You're going to tell me now? April Fools, I put the crayon in your spleen. My mother worried herself into a stroke over this. What's your problem? April Fools, I gave her stroke pills. This has financially crippled my family, Daniel. We're going to lose our house. I don't even know where we're going to sleep tonight. Uh... Really? Yeah. Look, I I really didn't mean for it to go this far. You guys can stay with me till you get back on your feet. I'm sorry. Thank you. It's the least you can do for us. I mean, I feel like this is mostly entirely your fault. I think you owe my family. I mean, you put us out on the street, basically. But if you did this for us, I mean, uh, I'm sure you'd get back in their good graces. April Fools. Why are you like this? Have fun on the street. You're sick. I'll give you change. We don't want your change. April Fools, it's chocolate. I hope you choke on your chocolate. April Fools, it's carob. Do you hear yourself? April Fools, I'm sad. Good, you should be. It shows you have a conscience. April Fools, I hate myself. Listen, it's all right, all right? I, I, you got carried away, and my family's going to be all right. You know, we, we've, we'll work through it. I, I can see clearly you're the one struggling. I, I guess I owe you a bomb. April Fool's, I'm fine. heard the first radio sumo wrestle (laughs) (laughs) the first podcast devoted exclusively to verbal sumo wrestling (laughs) dishonor (laughs) so welcome to yet another la meekly episode Uh, there's just so many yeah it's countless i'm sure there's a number but it's countless (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure there's a number you could probably count on you know your hands and feet but it's It's, innumerable i don't even know how you'd go about listing them maybe if you have like an infinity amount of feet sure this is countable but it's countless you know what i mean it's like you know what i mean this is the episode where we all know what greg means (laughs) okay (laughs) so this episode is going to be in honor of a month honoring things jazz appreciate jazz appreciation Appreciation month I'm going to spend April listening to a lot of Kenny G because he's the only jazz person I know. <laughs> he's the only jazz musician I feel safe listening to. <laughs> the rest of them with their jelly rolls and their... <laughs> their satchmos. I don't know. I don't know what I'm... I don't know what I'm getting. You know who there is? You got Basie, Miller, Satchmo, and the king of all, Sir Duke. Who are these men? What do they want? Are they royalty? Do I have to give them I money? I wonder. That's fun. That was, I, had a good time. Fun. I had a good time. Oh, Stevie Wonder's lawyer <laughs> just walked in. So we're going to be talking about a certain aspect of LA's jazz scene. There was a lot of jazz going on, but we're going to be talking about the Central Avenue jazz scene and the history thereof. Yes. Of C- Central Avenue, Avenue and its jazz scene. That's good. That's a, be- that's a better way to put it. Thank you. You're welcome. Everything surrounding the jazz scene, including the jazz scene. <laughs> <laughs> Everything up to and including the jazz scene 
but we might forget to do the jazz scene. <laughs> we might not have time <laughs> for it. There's no time for the jazz scene. <laughs> That's how we appreciate jazz as well. <laughs> You've heard how the Chinese used to be treated in L.A. You've heard how the Japanese were treated in L.A. You've even heard how the Keech were treated in L.A. So in this installment of our How Did Racism Happen <laughs> series, I'm going to be talking about the African-American history of Central Avenue and sort of Los Angeles in general. I hope it goes really well for them. How could it not? Yeah. We didn't spend the first eight episodes mentioning the riots. <laughs> so as usual, it all goes back to the very first days of a little town I like to call Los Angeles. A sleepy Pueblo town. Sleepy Pueblo town. What's that noise? It's a trumpet. <laughs> Jazz is happening. <laughs> Get me down to the avenue. You'll know what that means soon. So as it turns out, of the 11 families that founded the Pueblo, over half of them were black. Really? Or like of African descent. <laughs> I guess that's how it happens. <laughs> Maybe we should take a seminar before we do this. Did you get the, the memo from LA Meekly Corporate saying we have to be more racially sensitive? They just said tiptoe. They said beat bushes and tiptoe. The, they, of course, these these black people who founded the Pueblo, they remained marginalized for many years, but they were not African-American. They were Spanish, and later on there were Mexican people in the city who had African ancestry, but we're going to be talking about the African-American community in LA, which, as we know it, really started with a woman named Biddy Mason. I didn't know that. Tell me more about Biddy Mason. Listen and shut up. She was a slave owned by a man named Robert Marion Smith, who moved from the south to San Bernardino, which is as close as you're going to get to the south yeah. in this area. He brought with him his slave, Biddy, and they were going to join a Mormon community. So what Biddy found out when she got here, though, was that slavery was illegal in California. So uh-huh. she sued Smith and she won her freedom. Wow. Yeah. Classy. I know. Of all the court decisions you're going to be hearing about, I'm really surprised they sided with yeah. her on this one. I guess the law has to be like explicit. Explicitly clear. <laughs> I already imagined her like she has six steps over the state line. Oh, hey, are you doing court tomorrow? <laughs> so she started working as a midwife and she saved up enough money until she bought up some land around 331 Spring Street oh. downtown, making her the first African-American woman to own land in L.A. So then she co-founded the first African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1872. This was the first black church in L.A. and around this land sprouted up the city's first real black community that became known as Brick Block. So in this area, a guy named Frank Blackburn. That's a really cool name. It's a lot of strong sounds in that. Frank Blackburn. Frank Blackburn opened the city's first black business, which was Frank Blackburn's Coffee and Chop House in 1888. Coffee and Chop? Yeah. Like like a karate chop. <laughs> My son's here for a karate chop. Sure. <laughs> you want some coffee? <laughs> the name's Frank Blackburn. <laughs> Frank Blackburn. <laughs> so it's said that the first all-black street in LA was Azusa Street, which was at the time in an area officially known by the city as the Eighth Ward, which sounds very Boy. ominous. Let me set the scene for you of what the environment for African Americans was like in LA around this time. So LA was always pro-Confederate. <laughs> That's I very much like the South. <laughs> California, in fact, voted against the 15th Amendment to allow black men to vote. Mm -hmm. So that being said, L.A. was initially much more progressive than most other cities in the country, especially one that's technically in the South. You and me were Southern Bells. Southern California. Southern California Bells. 
So L.A. was one of the first cities to hire black police and firefighters as early as 1890. The the thing was the black population was so small that people, they didn't really worry about them as much. More importantly, the white people in the city were focusing all their hostility on Chinese people at the time. So for the moment, they were distracted from hating black people. Why hate black people when there's so many Chinese people around? (laughs) We're the real minority. That's white people talking. (laughs) Also, most of the whites coming to L.A. by the end of the 1800s were Republicans. Lincoln's Republicans, mind you, not no. modern-day Republicans, which are actually not, you know, it's a little scary. I don't know what the problem is. Coming from the East, they, <laughs> <laughs> so they were coming from the East and the Midwest, so their attitudes towards African Americans were much more accepting than most people. Most people meaning everybody in the South. <laughs> So the white people in the South around this time were upset about Reconstruction after the Civil War and the treatment of black people there was not kind. So the black people coming to L.A. around this time were escaping from the Southern racism of places like Texas, New Orleans, and Atlanta. So these were mostly middle class or like on the cusp of middle class people. So by 1890, the black population of L.A. had grown to 1,258. So the brick block area started to expand. They spread south until they hit Skid Row, which apparently existed at this point. It was a thing at this point. Point, that early and nobody wanted to live there so they headed east a little bit until they hit central avenue okay yeah skid row i guess has been there since <laughs> there has always been a skid row <laughs> even when there was no city here that one stretch of dirt was don't go there gonna, and that the expression was there too <laughs> that's where it came don't from go, don't they, go there they're gonna skid walk row, right I mean. in front of your stagecoach and you're like i'm trying to roll through this town like, yeah, yeah, I'm just got to cross the street when I'm not legally supposed to. <laughs> Don't park your stagecoach there. <laughs> so by 1900, there were 2,100 black people in L.A., which was about 2% of the population. At this point, the city's largest concentrated black population was located around 1st and Los Angeles Street. Okay. But they shared that area with many other nationalities. So unlike the Chinese or the Japanese or the Italians, there was no black town mm-hmm. if they the, named it that yeah. they, didn't, they would know where to go so there's no area that they could all find community in like the yeah. others yeah. Uh, could they could find community on yahoo first in spring i feel like we were we mentioned that a lot in the episode uh, the chinese episode is that the key to the city <gasps> that must be where the lizard people's gold is get your pickaxe <laughs> At all times. It's not very big. Most of the black population to the city was a like a diaspora. They were just kind of, I'll, I'll, exp- I'll define <laughs> it. They were <laughs> like face that obviously like, <laughs> your eyes literally fell out of your head. <laughs> and a screen came up and said, error 402. They Could were, you draw me a series of pictures? <laughs> they were just spread all over the place. You want to oh. go through the history of that word? For I mean, I could. Oh, they were dispersed. Oh, that's what I meant. They were dispersed era. They were in many different places, but don't think that means that the city was integrated by any means. There were black enclaves, like in places like Boyle Heights, Jefferson Boulevard, Pacoima, Mm -hmm. Abbott Kinney, as we talked about, set aside in Venice. That's right. Uh, He made Oakwood for his black workers. There was the Furlong Tract area created by an Irish guy named James, you guessed it, Tract. (laughs) James Furlong in 1905 between Long Beach Avenue, Alameda, and it covered 50th through 55th streets. So he sold plots of land to black families for $750 each, and the area was easily accessible to downtown via the Main Street car, so people could work downtown and live there. So it was here that the city's first all-black school was opened in 1910 with the 51st Street School, which taught kindergarten to sixth grade. It was all-black 
but all the teachers were white because it was illegal to hire a black teacher until 1911 when Bessie Brewington Burke became that school and the city's first black teacher. In 1919, she became that school and the city's first black principal. Oh. So this school burned down in 1922. Fire purifies everything. <laughs> but it was rebuilt and it's now the Holmes Avenue Elementary School, which is still there. But again, this area was also inhabited by white and Spanish speaking people. The people got along, but it wasn't like a black area this wasn't black town (laughs) you gotta stop saying that (laughs) what do you want me to call it they had an area a very mean name in chinatown i think what i'm saying is relatively very sensitive yeah okay i'll go okay if we're gonna start comparing things then yeah it's very sensitive so with small black communities scattered whoa whoa i'm just kidding (laughs) so scattered all across the city people they craved a centralized black area so Mm -hmm. slowly they started to gravitate towards what had formed out of the brick block and onto central avenue the central area of this new community was initially at ninth and central but the population kept growing in 1903 there was a protest of the Southern Pacific Railroad by the Mexican workers, so the company responded by bringing in some 2,000 black workers as scabs from other places in the country. They must have loved that. (laughs) Both sides. That's why there's so much harmony between... In 1910, there were 7,600 black people in LA, which was now the largest black urban population in the West, and by 1915, the epicenter of Central Avenue had moved south to 12th Street. So it was said that if you stood at this intersection long enough, you'd see every black person in LA because they, they, they'd they all pass by at one point. Because it was There's all centralized. It's Daniel. That's me. Kurt. Larry. Samuel? Frank Blackburn? <laughs> <laughs> now I've seen them all. Not a lot of girls in this town. <laughs> There's five, <laughs> five, five men. men. So in 1920, the black population of LA more than doubled to 15,579 with the new epicenter being at 22nd and central and the 30 block area of the central avenue community housed 40 percent of the city's entire black population so central avenue became the place to be if you were black in la and the southern border kept going further and further down on the street so things seemed to be going well for la's african americans considering the racial situation relative to the rest of the country right yes Like I said, the segregation in the city was less overt than the rest of the country. Working wages were higher than the rest of the country. In 1910, 36% of black people in L.A. owned their home, which was the highest percentage in the nation. In 1918, a black man named Fred Roberts was even elected to the California state legislature. But as we know, just because a black man is elected in a high position of government does not mean that racism is over. (laughs) So white people were still, for the most part, afraid of black people and still Starting around 1910, the relative haven that L.A. was for black people started to go away. As the city's population and its economy started growing faster and faster, there was more competition for housing and jobs. That accepting attitude everybody was so proud of towards African Americans slowly faded away, maybe even not so slowly. (laughs) An incident in 1902, a black person tried to move to 33rd and Hooper, which was not yet a black sort of area. They were confronted by an angry mob at his new house. It was said to be the city's first open conflict between the races. Oh, so So this is down. (laughs) Commemorate. Get a plaque there. So in 1914, another black person tried to move to 18th and Central so her white neighbors broke into her house and threw everything she owned out on the lawn. Oh, that's that's really mean. I just put that stuff down. I just unpacked. Maybe they were trying to help. Honey, you're going to wear that? 
This looks better on the lawn. <laughs> this looks better in the bushes. Stop. This can stay. This looks good here. <laughs> this is too heavy. How are we going to get an armoire onto the lawn? <laughs> I'll just kick it. The more significant thing that happened in 1914 was the release of Birth of a Nation. Mm. Which, what this did was it kick-started the KKK back into popularity. KKK kick oh <laughs> so the local <laughs> all about soccer and soccer kk hooligans. community the local naacp and the la forum which i'll get to soon not the sports arena oh um then never mind they sued theaters in la for showing birth of a nation but didn't work the kkk the kkk they developed a stronghold in watts and in 1920, they even marched on City Hall. And by 1925, they effectively stopped the black expansion down Central Avenue at Slauson Avenue. Jesus. So for decades, that made Slauson the unofficial racial boundary line of the city. Wow. So anybody that dared to try to move past there was usually chased out by death threats, vandalism, violence, pretty much until after World War II. The black people who did eventually live further south below 95th Street would have to go through that huge stretch of white area to get home, which was horrifying, yeah. like especially at night having to go walk through the KKK meeting for for 40 blocks. <laughs> what, a 40 block meeting? Every night. So bad stories came out of this area, like KKK attacks, little kids being beaten by police officers Jeez. for using the white swings, which were not painted white, as I found out. If the upper Central Avenue area was the black downtown, the southern part was like the rural area. Uh-huh. I have a question. Is this, the southern part is the... So- yeah, it must be the side closer to Long Beach, so further away. Is the yeah, part. Okay. yeah. You know, like a compass. <laughs> Everywhere I'm facing is north. Every direction I'm in. Forward is north. The seat of my pants is south. The more southern area, it was sometimes called Plum Nelly. Oh. As in plum out of the city and Nelly out of the world. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. It's also very racist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Mom, for having to say that. Have you ever had plum jelly? What did you say? <laughs> so in other words, Upper Central was swing, while South Central was the blues. Oh. By the way, hearing that, this is where the name South Central came from, which blew my mind doing this research. Yeah, it was really funny when I was taking down addresses like 4013 South Central. So, so. Oh. <laughs> is that the same area? It's the same thing I hear in 90s rap. It started being called South Central in the 20s, at first referring to the southern part of Central Avenue, but the name eventually took on the meaning of just the whole area. Yeah. So, anyway, in 1917, the case of Buchanan versus Warley declared racial zoning unconstitutional. However, it did not address certain gray areas, which led to the much more damaging 1918 California Supreme Court ruling that said that restricting black people from owning property was protected by the Constitution. <laughs> By the way, this was the same Supreme Court that brought you not punishing the people who killed all the Chinese people in 1871. Same day. What's the next case? F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> so what this did was it created what are called restrictive housing covenants, which okay. allowed white people to put into the land deeds that the property can only be sold to white people. Boring. Sorry. These had been around since 1900, but when they were officially made legal in 1918, the town went to town on them. So they were seen as safe alternatives to the violence that came with black people trying to move into white areas. Seen safe, mind you, by white people, 
not by black people. <laughs> Protective associations were formed to make sure neighborhoods were making sure that people were enforcing the restrictive covenants. Okay. Policies were introduced in 1921 that could revoke a real estate agent's license if they sold homes to black people in white yeah. neighborhoods. The Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, Greg. Not the FHA. Not them. Surely not them. So they wouldn't even give loans to areas that didn't adhere to the restrictive covenants. Mm-hmm. So the city segregation started to go from less de facto to more facto. <laughs> the previously desegregated fire department was resegregated and a special black fire department was formed just for black fires. Uh, your fires are scarier. That's all. <laughs> and we, we give you less water to work with. You don't get water, you get sawdust. There's a drought. There's going to be a drought in 100 years. (laughs) Black YMCAs and YWCAs were formed. There were black hospitals. While the rest of the people in the city were moving into the new areas in the expanding city's boundaries, the African Americans were forced to live in the old, already established areas of the cities that they had the white people had left behind. So white people even tried to get the black people who were living in some of the more western areas evicted from their homes. In the 20s, USC led a movement to segregate the neighborhoods around Adams Boulevard, where Richard black people had started to move in yeah usc your precious usc i don't know not my precious usc your trojans they marched they marched on central (laughs) avenue (laughs) not the trojans i thought what they don't march they never march trojans don't march show me proof that they march because they wear sandals (laughs) i'm lacc all the way bay baby Berber, you don't even want to hear what the LACC Burger. did. So now Central Avenue was starting to look more and more like the only place where black people could really live in peace. And this brought even more people to the area, if for no other reason than they literally could not live anywhere else. So the further down south the avenue that they moved, like running through a crowd of pigeons, just like white people <laughs> flying, like leaving. We got to get out of here. So in 1919, the black riots in St. Louis and Chicago, that scared white people in LA even more. For a while, Central Avenue itself was segregated straight straight down the middle yeah. with black people on the west and white people on the east that's uh your left hand and your right hand oh but facing what direction <laughs> central avenue was the main line of the black community but there were some landowners surrounding it who didn't mind black people living on their property and then there were some who did <laughs> this resulted in these like detached islands of mm-hmm. black areas separated by white blocks surrounding no, no. Surround, like surrounding the yeah. main drag. So the largest gap here was between Slauson and Watts, which was where the KKK they <laughs> convention had... happened every day. <laughs> Spelled they... with a K, the KKKK. They should put arm in arm. They look like a giant picket, white picket fence. <laughs> you would walk by like running a stick down. <laughs> hey. Yeah, that's what they would say to a, hey. black, a black kid playing. Say, what are you doing? <laughs> Get out of here. Wise cracker. <laughs> we're the crackers. They were the crackers. Yeah, they were the crackers. We weren't very wise, though. <laughs> so as the years went on and the black population grew and there were more opportunities for white people to move to other parts of the cities, these gaps that I was, the islands started to get filled in. Okay. So the general area that black people were living in that we're talking about was Alameda on the east. That's your left hand. Uh-huh. Maine on the west. That's the right hand. Stretch my arms out. Washington on the north. That's the tippy tip of your nose. Uh-huh. And Slauson on the south. That's the bottom of your dungarees. <laughs> With Central Avenue being the social center of yeah. all of this. So the population kept growing, but the area that they inhabited, that was like the set boundaries. It did not get any bigger. So this pretty much made the area a ghetto in that it was a densely populated area of a minority people mm-hmm. that were there because they weren't allowed anywhere else, which right. is the, pretty much the ghetto. De- yeah. It was a really nice and clean and safe ghetto, but it was still a ghetto. Yeah. Like Elvis said. The hungry child. I don't remember the rest hungry of the song. Hungry child cries. 
something. Her, his mother cries. A hungry, ti- a hungry child's mother eats a hound dog. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, life <laughs> Greg has left the building. Life went on, and the community really built up a nice place for itself. There were black newspapers started to pop up. Mm-hmm. The Los Angeles Sentinel was started by Leon Washington in 1933 and focused on the goings-on of the black community. Most importantly, the music scene, which is first of my many teases <laughs> that we're going to be talking about the music scene, just not me. I didn't I'm not gonna play it. I brought a trumpet. <laughs> Time for Greg's interpretive dance of <laughs> the jazz scene of LA. The Los Angeles Tribune catered to the black community as well. Mm-hmm. The most important one to Central Avenue was the California Owl. Because they stay up late. Who? But we're watching everybody. <laughs> Mr. California Owl. <laughs> How many licks to get to the heart of racism? <laughs> so it was established in 1879 by a what nothing was what? it really called the owl yeah the california owl well i'll get i'll okay, okay. this will all make sense all right, all right. to I, to anybody I that isn't yet <laughs> to anybody that isn't you they'll do they just who yeah. would know <laughs> like, i could say anything who would look, know look let's just put our hands over the microphone they're not listening no, not, they're not. someone with credentials is gonna listen to this i made this whole thing up you think there's really black people in la no, in our city they never let them they wouldn't let them. All right, back on. Yeah. So the California Owl was established in 1879 by a freed slave named John James Jingleheimer. Is it yeah, Peter Parker as a as a photographer? Parker. John James Nemore, and the headquarters were 4071 to 4075 Central Avenue. It was started as a paper to help newly arrived African Americans get used to life in LA. That's cool. It listed housing information, job openings. It also just told stories about like the nightlife. Mm-hmm. Again, another tease, and just local gossip from the Ave- the Central Avenue. A woman named Charlotta Charlotta Bass Bass. Boss. She might have been two people. Her twin sister. Same first name, different last name. <laughs> Charlotta Bass. Char- Char- Charlotta Boss. You're killing Bass. it with the name thing. Char- CB. <laughs> she started working for the Owl okay. in 1910. And in 1912, when Nemo died, she took the helm and became the first African-American woman to own a newspaper and brought more of a civil rights element to it and rechristened it the California Eagle. Ooh, That's go Eagle. The name you love. Was, Eagle beats Trojan. Doesn't beat Al, though. Doesn't beat Al, though. Doesn't beat Al, though. I think it's though. something about Al. I don't know what you just said. Al, though. Doesn't beat Al, though. Doesn't beat Al, though. Anywho. That's Waller. That's <laughs> <laughs> Waller. You're here too soon, Mr. Waller. <laughs> it's it, Mr. Q. It's me, Chubby Checker. Chubby Checker. The California Eagle now began listing what places were not just hiring, but willing to hire black people. Oh, neat. Okay. They also told things like which businesses weren't giving black workers their paychecks and who was firing black workers when they'd ask for their paychecks. (laughs) So by 1925, the Eagle became the biggest black newspaper in California with 60,000 subscribers. So in 1938, they started doing 15-minute newspaper on the air segments on KGF. This is hard to... KGFJ. Oh no, that's not gonna that's yeah. not gonna fly out of somebody's mouth. <laughs> so they did these segments six nights a week, uh-huh. and in 1940, the California Eagle Hour was on KFVD every Sunday night. That sounds awesome. Say it one more time. California Eagle Hour. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, new title for this. <gasps> California Eagle Hour. <laughs> the California Eagle Three Hours. <laughs> so the newspaper lasted a while, but Charlotta Bass, CB? the mystery woman, Ooh, sold CB? it. <laughs> 
She sold it in the early 50s to a lawyer named Lauren Miller, who managed to keep it running, but in 1964, it finally closed. She'll come up later. Other organizations popped up to help the black community. Mm -hmm. On December 9th, 1913, going back a little bit, eight black women met for lunch and ended up founding a club to promote physical culture, art, literature, and moral philosophy in the community. What do you think they called it? Sisterhood of traveling capris you got it <laughs> they called it the fizz art litmore club <gasps> really yeah. i didn't mean to gasp that's just amazing that must have took a whole mojito to come up with <laughs> so as of 1990 was, i don't know i'm hungry whatever as of 1990 this organization was still going strong so there were branches of the national african-american business league and the national urban league in la there was an elks temple near 34th street mm-hmm. something called the la forum was founded in 1902 that held meetings at Biddy Mason's First AME Church. They raised money and gave to local charities and helped out any members of the black community who needed it. They funded the education of Ruth Temple, who went on to become the city's first black female doctor. And they were also the ones who helped Bessie Burke get her job as the city's first black teacher in the Furlong Tract. Was her name Bessie Burke? Bessie Burke. Bessie Burke. Is she the girlfriend of the black Clark Kent? Yeah. (laughs) That's a superhero girlfriend name. Pepper Potts, Lois Lane. Bessie Burke. Bessie Burke. (laughs) She was a superhero because she was a teacher, okay? Not all superheroes wear capes. (laughs) Some of them wear rulers. Some of them wear power suits, okay? I think you should educate yourself. I just think that uh, you're not smart. That's all. The first NAACP branch in California opened in LA in 1913, and it quickly joined forces with the California Eagle. So the business situation on Central Avenue in the 1920s was mostly white people Mm -hmm. owning the properties and the businesses, but not living anywhere near Central Avenue and only hiring white people to work there. So then the Eagle started to urge its readers to not support any of these businesses who refused to hire black people. They wanted hiring of black people as a matter of right and not just a concession. So within a few years, suddenly there were black employees on the street and then came black, completely black owned businesses. And by 1931, there were over 75 black businesses on or around Central Avenue. There were places like the Pig and Pit Barbecue at 4200 Central Avenue. Amazing. As far as names go for restaurants. I like this one. Ivy's Chicken Shack. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Ivy's Chicken Shack. Really? Yeah, Dude. we'll get to that. Do you know what their slogan was? No, tell me. Keep them frying. Oh, my God. Can you keep explain that, Keep them frying. I don't really get it. Like, keep them trying, but like, frying. That really does make me hungry, just the phrase, keep them frying. Yeah, it makes me want, like, a deep fried cello or something. <laughs> hey, all... You know how expensive that is? There were a lot of barber shops. So one thing that wasn't black owned, but is still interesting on Central, is the Coca-Cola bottling plant that looks like a boat. (laughs) It does look like a boat. This particular one was built in 1936, but there's been a Coca-Cola plant on Central since 1915. The boat one was declared a city cultural monument in 1976. It's at 1200 to 1334 Central Avenue down in Compton. Mm -hmm. The biggest blackest business was the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company. They opened up in 1928 at 4261 Central Avenue, and they were for a very brief moment the largest employer in the community. Really? So the most important black business on Central was actually a hotel. Black people from all around the country, famous or otherwise, (laughs) famous or peon, would come to visit LA, but the hotels in Hollywood and places like that would turn them away. So they would have to stay with friends or relatives, or if they didn't have any in the area, in these black 
black boarding houses, which were gross and they had bed bugs and they're dangerous places. I don't want to say that. So as an alternative, there was something called the Green Book that was a guide for black travelers that would tell them what hotels and restaurants and stores would allow black people inside. Mm -hmm. And this book would guide them all to Central Avenue. That's awesome. Imagine like... (laughs) All right, you got Lonely Planet and <laughs> Lonely People. I'm reading a green book. That's not really f- for you. I'm sorry. I read the green book and I get Jet Magazine. <laughs> The first hotel on Central to cater to black people was the Lions Hotel at 11th in 1912, but the big one was a little further south. So in June 1928, the Somerville Hotel was open at 4225 to 4233 Central Avenue on 42nd Place by the Jamaican-born John Alexander Somerville. So Somerville first came to California in 1902, and in 1907, he became the first black man to graduate from the USC School of Dentistry. He also had the highest GPA in his class, And his wife, coincidentally, Vada Watson Somerville, became the first black woman to graduate from the USC School of Dentistry in 1918. They found each other. And she was also the first black woman to be licensed for dentistry in California. What was her first name? Vada. Vada. Somerville opened up the hotel because he saw the need for first class black accommodations in the city Mm -hmm. and was spurred on to open it in time for the first West Coast NAAC, NAACP, NAACP. What did you put? And I put the right thing. I'm getting. I always get confused with the NCAA. Oh yeah 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 The NAAC, the West Coast NAACP convention, the year that it opened. So the hotel was financed by John and his wife Vada, and by various organizations within the Black community, and it prided itself in being built with Black money by Black builders and Black contractors. So unfortunately, Somerville's time with the hotel was brief because when the stock market crashed the year after it opened, he was forced to sell it to a lawyer. Named Lucius Lomax. Oh, that's the villain. That is Black the, Superman. <laughs> the Mike. He's here, and he also. Uh, we're mixing too many universes. I was yeah. going to say, he, wait, he doesn't own a newspaper. This is a hotel we're talking about. Anyway, so that would be the sleaziest Superman villain if Lex Luthor is just like, I got a Hilton. What are you going to do? <laughs> Somerville turned out all right, though, as he went on to become the second black member of the Chamber of Commerce and was later on the police commission from wow. 1949 to 53. The hotel itself went on to even better things. The hotel became the first building to serve in the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> veto, veto. <laughs> who, who gave that building a caffle? Shut his windows. A first order of business, the new owner changed changed the name of the hotel to the Dunbar Hotel after the poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, whose poem Sympathy is where the line I know why the caged bird sings comes from. Mm. So it's named after him. The place became one of the nicest hotels for black people in the country, if not the nicest. It was the Ritz-Carlton. It was the black Ritz-Carlton. It was five stories high with 115 rooms available for a dollar a night or $5 for the week, which is like $400 in today's dollars. (laughs) Uh, you you got to get a converter down. <laughs> it's like six grand or something. I don't know. I don't really know numbers. I don't know. How much was milk? I don't care. <laughs> Round- Came by the cow. <laughs> the ground floor had a cafe, a dining hall, flower shop, stenographer's office, a bar, beauty parlor, liquor store. There was always music playing. We'll get to it again. Mm-hmm. A little tease. This became the hub of all of Central Avenue. The whole street revolved around it, and the area outside became like the unofficial town square. People would meet up with their friends here. They'd gossip. They'd catch up. They'd look at each other's cars and their clothes and they'd 
they get all hot for each other. <laughs> what you got those pantaloons? <laughs> what is that, a Ford? What is that, a denim? A denim Ford? A, de- a Ford denim. Ford, the Ford denim. <laughs> <laughs> so there were heated discussions about the future of African Americans in the lobby every night. The NAACP would meet here sometimes. Musicians, hint, hint. Mm-hmm. Boxers, actors would hang out in the bar there after a night of work. Along with the factory workers, they would come in as well. So they would all rub shoulders and they'd say, don't touch my shoulder. I'm a celebrity and you're a factory worker. If we rub our celebrities really quick, we might start a fire. Fire purifies everything. Quick, take this to the furlong tract <laughs> and Chinatown while you're at it. So this is where all the black celebrities would stay when they were in town. People mm. said that for sighting celebrities, Hollywood had the Chinese theater. South Central had the Dunbar. The guests included Joe Lewis, mm-hmm. Billie Holiday, Billy Strayhorn, Cab Billy Calloway, <laughs> Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller, Jelly Roll Martin, Ray Charles, and W.E.B. Dubois, who Ooh, Dubois. called the Dunbar a beautiful inn with soul. Ooh, I like that. Young musicians would hang around outside the hotel all day, hoping to catch a glimpse of one of the icons passing through. Supposedly, an African prince named Prince Modup worked at the Dunbar as a bellhop for really? a little bit, <laughs> and then he went back to Africa, and then he came back a few years later with like servants and like a whole fanfare and like what happened to you he's like oh my dad became king (laughs) can i get a room and i don't want to pay a dollar a night give me the prince rate give me the bellboy formerly known as prince it's okay it's a dollar 75 it's good to be prince uh here's an old friend coming back it's good good to be mowed up old friend coming back who is it hattie mcdaniel mammy Oh, really? Yeah, Mammy. She used to spend a lot of time hanging out around the Dunbar, and she would get picked on a lot. And after she started working in movies, she cruised past there in her new car, and they'd be like, Hattie McDaniel. (laughs) And she said, I'd stop to talk, but I'm going to go film Gone with the Wind. (laughs) See you later. And then she got in her Ford Denim and sped out of it. Eventually, Quincy Jones would start spending time around the hotel. Local cop and future mayor, Tom Bradley, okay. would stop in the Dunbar regularly. Very so, football name. Yeah. Was he our first football player? Yeah, our first football player was Tom Bradley. He threw a touchdown into City Hall. <laughs> he hit a Hail Mary into the grandstand. Supposedly, one night, you're going to like this, W.C. Fields <laughs> passed out drunk in the lobby and became the hotel's first white guest. Applause. Suck it, segregation. (laughs) Always the fighter for (laughs) integration. So it was around this time that Central Avenue really came into its own. It went by many names. Beale Street of the West, 52nd Street of Los Angeles, the Black Belt of the City. I like that. Swing Street, the main main stem. Here's Uh my favorite. Whoopi Highway. Oh, Oh. we're making rock and roll on Whoopi Highway. (laughs) Gold Jelly Roll Morton. (laughs) Here's a stranger one. Suntan Avenue. It gets a little weird here. I don't like that. Brown Broadway. (laughs) I wrote these ones. (laughs) (laughs) I'm submitting them to the NAACP. (laughs) What do you guys think? Here's one that's kind of fun. Eh, It's stupid. Harlem Wood Boulevard. Okay, I can see that. It's very Forrest Ackerman, though. Yeah. Like, like you can't... Yeah, I thought the same thing. Yeah, if he's coming up with Horrorwood, (laughs) if they were going to say Hollywood, you could still roll your eyes like, okay. Here's the coolest one, though. The Great Black Way. Oh, I like that. Oh, whoa. That's strong. That's that's stronger than the Black Belt one. Nothing stronger than a Black Belt. (laughs) Most simply, though, it was just called The Avenue. Classy. I didn't even know that was called that, but I, I refer to it. I'm one of the guys. <laughs> just one of the guys hang around the yeah. avenue. No, you, you, if you want to find me, I'll be hanging out on 42nd Street in Central where people love me. The art scene was vibrant. Mm-hmm. Aside from the music, tease, tease, tease. I tease did, on I, the nice. I did orange grows. 
the beautiful orange uh-huh. groves beautiful. of Central <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> Aside from the music, there was a lot of great authors coming out of the Avenue. Books about life on the Avenue came out, like Sweet Man by mm-hmm. Gilmore Millen. Later on, Walter Mosley would set his book Devil in a Blue Dress mm-hmm. around the Avenue. Raymond Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely starts out on Central Avenue. The most important author probably to come out of the Avenue itself. I think I know who you're talking about. Who? Who do you think it is? Ralph Allison? No. No. What? I said James important. Baldwin, uh-huh. Langston Hughes. They didn't really, I wouldn't consider those. <laughs> the, his name was J.K. Rowling. His name His name was R.L. Stein. I'm here for Horwood. Oh, uh, you lost. I'm afraid you've gone a little too far. He made a wrong turn at uh, Swing Street. Chester B. Himes. Oh, really? Yeah. He was a rough, sometimes violent guy mm-hmm. who started writing while in prison in Ohio for armed robbery. I didn't think he was in prison. Yeah. He eventually came to L.A. and he started working in the shipyards of San Pedro. So he kept writing and he managed to capture the pulse of black L.A. kind of better than anybody. And later on, he had characters like Coffin Ed Jones and Gravedigger. Mm-hmm. Coffin Ed Johnson and Gravedigger Jones. My apologies to the <laughs> Coffin and Grave families. With those characters, he kind of became the father of pulpy black crime mm-hmm. novels, even though those characters were, their stuff was set in New York. Yeah. But his major LA-based book was If He Hollers, Let Him Go. He ended up working at Warner Brothers for a little bit in the really? 40s for $47 a week writing synopses of books the studio was considering making. How much was Faulkner and Fitzgerald being paid? They were being paid somewhere between at least 200 to 500 a week i think like a thousand a project at least he got 47 and also he was doing coverage if they gave him a 50 he would have to give change back (laughs) 50 dollar bill didn't exist back then (laughs) so he did this for a while until one day his boss bumped into jack warner on the lot and told him oh i've got this i've got this new guy working for me and he's he's pretty good and warner said well who is he and he said oh he's a young black man and then warner said (laughs) And I'm cleaning this up. I don't want no N-words on this lot. So that was the end of that. Wow. Show business was uh, shut its doors to Jack Chester Warner just made a list right now. <laughs> so a lot of writers from the Harlem Renaissance came over to try their hand in movies like Wallace Thurman, Langston Hughes, your favorite L.A. <laughs> author. So when talkies came out, musicians across the country lost their jobs playing in movie houses, yeah. but musicians were needed for all these Hollywood movies, so many of them came out here. Again, we're going to get to the music, I promise. This is behind the music. <laughs> Pop-up video here. <laughs> if Hollywood ever needed black extras, they'd just go down to the Dunbar and they'd recruit whoever was around. Oh, really? okay. So one of the most fortuitous instances Ooh. of this type of thing fortuitous. was when one day Jack Benny called the Dunbar for a guy named Johnny Taylor, but Johnny Taylor was in jail. <laughs> so instead, a guy named Eddie Anderson said, I'll go. Anderson came to LA in the 30s to try to make it in Hollywood, uh-huh. and he became a pretty well-known guy around the avenue. Yeah. But on screen, the roles he got was the usual demeaning, yeah. really offensive black roles. But that appearance as a Pullman porter on Jack Benny's radio show changed mm-hmm. everything. So Benny liked him so much that he made him a show regular as Benny's manservant, and he was given the name Rochester, Rochester. Van Jones. Is that his last name? I didn't know yeah. that. Rochester. He's Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> Not only was this the first regular black character on a national radio show, mm-hmm. it was also a black guy actually playing a black 
guy. Yeah. It, it wasn't Amos and Andy. That's just Eddie. <laughs> Plus, it was a role for a black person as an actual person and not just the butt of all the jokes. Yeah. So he was still his servant, and at times the role could be kind of offensive. Just yeah, here how, could, how could it not be? But he often got the better of Benny. So Benny was the one that was the butt of the jokes, yeah. not Rochester. So Rochester would call Benny boss. He wouldn't call him sir. Yeah. He'd mock Benny. He'd laugh at him. And a black guy laughing at his white boss at this time was revolutionary. <laughs> and Rochester, the character, lived on Central Avenue, and he would mention it frequently, which the locals went nuts whenever they heard it. <laughs> so he could speak freely, and the character was a rejection of blackface. So in one episode, Benny asks Rochester to sing, and he says, I can't do that blackface stuff. So Anderson himself eventually bought a racehorse named Burnt Cork, referring to the burnt cork that black performers would rub on their faces oh, to get into blackface. Boy. So they even... Oh, no. Wait, wait, go back a little bit. Did Rochester, the character, say that? Or did Jack Benny... No, Rochester, the character, said, said it. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it happened in real life. Yeah. yeah. Oh, save it, save, it for the, save it for the screen. Art imitates life when you're Jack Benny. <laughs> okay, we're back to Burnt Cork. Back to Burnt Cork. I, I bet you'd love to go back to Burnt Cork. <laughs> so they even used the Rochester character to make fun of stereotypes. So one time, Rochester threatened to quit. And Benny says, but I haven't paid you yet. And Rochester says, that's all right. I'll just take some spoons on my way out. <laughs> What's funny about that is that's something that Jack Benny could have evilly said too. So Rochester was a hero on Central Avenue and so was Anderson. And there was this long tradition of electing an honorary black mayor on Central Avenue. I read that Scatman Crothers was one time elected. <laughs> and in 1940, Anderson ran for the position and used the Dunbar as his headquarters. And he vowed in his campaign to fight to get locals equal rights, to get cleaner streets, oh, for more, better police protection, and to pave Central Avenue with pancakes and flood it with molasses. <laughs> I support this man. You have my vote. Obviously, he won a, la- <laughs> a landslide, a molasses slide. He he withheld breakfast from everybody. <laughs> streets made of pancakes. Yeah, 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 whatever he said. Just give yeah, it. He yeah, got elected, yeah. and he actually tried to do it. <laughs> I thought he was joking. There were a lot of assassination attempts. Drunk with power. Drunk with power. So he won, and he was a national star. He used the position to try to fight for change. That's great. So jobs and population growth were always problems on the avenue. So L.A. was so anti-union, as we know, and is filled with exploding news buildings, and it attracted a lot of black workers to come over here. However, the jobs that they were able to get by not being in a union also hurt them because now they had no rights at their job. In the 20s and 30s, most black workers in L.A. worked in the service industry, and by the end of the 1920s, there were 39,000 African Americans living in LA, again, most of them living around Central Avenue. And in 1930, 40% of all black men worked in service and 87% for women. So this meant things like janitors, waiters, chauffeurs, street cleaners, garbage mm-hmm. men. On the plus side, they were getting higher wages than other black workers in other parts of the country. Factories would not hire black workers, but that actually turned out to be a good thing when the depression hit, because when all the factories started to close, it was white people getting laid off okay. and the black people still had their jobs away from the factories. One of the many perks of segregation. <laughs> but that did not last long because once the depression really started, the black workers were, they were gone. They, they got to go. And <laughs> they lasted a little longer. Yeah, they yeah. lasted, a li- they hung on to the sinking ship. They, of course, ended up suffering much worse than yeah. white workers. Yeah. So during the depression, the most coveted jobs for black service workers became Pullman porters, which was the same job that Rochester mm-hmm. had in the first thing, which were porters for the rail company. They had a strong union that won them victories like allowing them to ignore white train passengers who called them George 
after George Pullman, who owned the trains, implying that they were slaves who had taken their master's name. Mm, that's vicious. <laughs> Where have I seen that, though? Uh, uh, you do it whenever you get <laughs> <laughs> It's a joke. We all get it. Don't you know about Pullman? <laughs> don't you know about <laughs> <laughs> Why are you throwing me into this trash can? <laughs> as revered as this job was in the community, mm-hmm. it was also kind of despised at the same time Why? because it was just servicing white people okay. on trains. Like, it was a job, but at the same time, the only job they're allowed to have is getting chips and peanuts for white people. Yeah. And a smiling black person was the safest black person for a white person to yeah. see. So one guy who gained some unexpected power in the city was L.G. Robinson, who was the head of the county janitorial services. Mm-hmm. So he not only had the power to hire black workers to be on his crew, but he was also a fixture around the government buildings downtown. So when any government employees had a question about black L.A., they'd come to him. Wow. So he could sort of influence them. And he also formed like some sort of an unofficial black city council. So Central Avenue was getting crowded. The Long Beach earthquake in 1933 destroyed destroyed the furlong tract so that community sort of merged with the avenue and made things even more crowded Mm -hmm. in 1940 there were 63,744 african americans living in la this was the biggest population in the west who do you think was second in the west san francisco very close oakland oh really but guess okay so we had 63,744 how many do you think oakland had like 20 not 20, like two zero, like 20,000. 8,500. Really? <laughs> we had, who lived, who lived up the ghost town? It's a ghost town, Daniel. It's a ghost town. <laughs> All Scooby-Doo adventures were in Oakland. <laughs> Oakland adventures of Scooby-Doo. Really? That's yeah. it? Yeah, it was like, it's such a huge gap. It yeah. was just so much, I mean, who wants to, you're going to live, look at the Golden Gate Bridge all day? You know how cold it is up there? <laughs> what, are you going to eat clam chowder out of a sourdough bowl? You know how far I have to go between gas stations? You might not even make it. So then World War II hit. What's that? Do you remember the Great War? <laughs> I remember the Pretty Good Wars. Oh, the War of 1812. (laughs) As I said, black workers didn't used to be allowed to work in factories. But in 1941, Executive Order 8802 was executive ordered, (laughs) which forbade hiring discriminations for wartime production. So now not only were there a ton of new jobs, black people were allowed to have them. So you've heard of the Great Migration. Yes, I have. Well, if you haven't, (laughs) it happened in the 20s when a lot of black Southerners became black Northerners. Mm -hmm. What happened during World War II? Two is known as the Second Great Migration, which brought a bunch of African Americans west to come work in these factories in LA. The peak of this migration was 1943, but over the course of the 40s, over 140,000 African Americans moved into LA. Where was where? Where did they? Where do you think? Little Tokyo, obviously. We, I, I, I touch on that briefly. <laughs> I touch on this very so prolonged it's inappropriate. Can I talk? Can I mention something about the factories that I was going to mention? Yeah, they were open. They Proceed. Were, Proceed. They were operating 24 hours a day, so they needed twice as much people. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, I mean, there was a lot of uh, war factor, war factories. A lot of <laughs> factories producing let's war not, materials. They were war factories. Were war factories. <laughs> you could say that. Let's not mince words. It fits into something called Breakfast Club, so which we'll talk about. Too. My favorite movie from the 80s. Despise that movie. Go ahead. <laughs> Proceed. So, <laughs> in the late 30s, African Americans and Japanese Americans sort of became rival allies because they were both oppressed minorities and they both lived in the same general area area. Mm-hmm. And after all, Central Avenue ran into Little Tokyo. Yeah. Then Executive Order 9066 happened. It always benefits a certain <laughs> group and is horrible for another certain group. So the African Americans, they were horrified of what was happening yeah. to the Japanese people. But at the same time, 
Well, there's all this new space. Oh, that house is all empty Look at now. all this, this oh, whole area, and we're really crowded here. Also, our main competition's gone. Meanwhile, the Chinese were setting off fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> so many of the Japanese people who were evicted gave their property to their black friends. The uh-huh. rest of the property was either sold to the new black tenants by their white owners, yeah. or they were just squatted in. Yeah. Executive Order mm-hmm. 9066 happened February 1942. Mm-hmm. By fall 1943, Little Tokyo was now known as Bronzeville. It covered 66 square blocks and its epicenter was between San Pedro and Central. Okay. So it was a black Whoa. area. What? I just know that I just know that area and it's very tight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was a black area made not by segregation, but by black people themselves. And people were really excited about this. They even had a big party to celebrate the area's new creation, complete with a Miss Bronzeville competition won by a Miss Laura Long. Ooh, Laura Long. Another superhero girlfriend. She's got to be a girlfriend. Yeah, girls can't. Girls can't be superheroes. Come on. Unless they're teachers. That's not the meanest thing we've said, but it's like three, like two or three. The other two are in this episode. Yeah, yeah, they've heard them all already. (laughs) So while 8,000 Japanese people left the area, about 30,000 African Americans took their place. (laughs) So the people... So the people coming over as part of the Second Great Migration would get off the trains at Union Station and come straight for Bronzeville. Three blocks, yeah. It's kind of like, we've got, you know, there's another register open down there, but (laughs) this one's closer. Let's all crowd this one. I read it described as if Central Avenue were a shaken up soda bottle, Bronzeville was the explosion coming out the top of it. The first black business in Bronzeville was the Digby Hotel at 506.5 East 1st Street in early 1943, opened by a guy named Leonard Christmas. (laughs) Leo Christmas. <laughs> Father Christmas, Father as Christmas. his kids called him. <laughs> so here's a connection for you. He got the money to open this hotel from a loan from the Security First National Bank, <laughs> which is a descendant of the bank that Tiburcio Vasquez <laughs> once robbed and was owned by the guy who bought Mission San Gabriel and Turnbull Canyon, and the bank later became the bank that Stanley Rifkin robbed. Massive connection. Tell there's, me how. There's, got, there's some conspiracy we're going <laughs> to stumble upon one day. So this guy Christmas... Christmas? Christmas? Christmas he, Day. He also helped found a Bronzeville Chamber of Commerce. Okay. The Miyako Hotel became the Civic Hotel mm-hmm. and housed people like Charlie Parker and former mayor of Central Avenue, Scatman Crothers. All I know him from is another hotel he stayed at. Hotel California? That's it. It... Okay, is a ho- is a hotel California supposed to be haunted? I don't know how many times I have to ask people. In, in Disneyland California Adventure, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything's everything's haunted. Everything. Yeah. How could it not be? Scamman Crothers is not the first haunted place he's ever been. There was a lot of optimism and excitement around this whole thing, and that only drew in more migrants. Their slogan became "This is Bronzeville. Watch us grow." Unfortunately, they grew too much. <laughs> So it's estimated that 175 people were moving into the area every day, and they, there literally was no space for them. There, 12,000 people lived in unlicensed housing. There was often up to 16 people in a single room. Oh. People were sleeping on the street. One night, there was 153 people sleeping outside a hotel that had no vacancy. Display windows became bedrooms. <laughs> Facilities got run down really quickly. Some barbershops had to share one towel. Sewage would bubble up into the restaurant's kitchen sinks. The area, it became a slum. So LA was a beautiful place. <laughs> Come and visit LA. Step off the train. <laughs> you step on eight people. <laughs> Come <laughs> join the dog pile. <laughs> LA. <laughs> I love Angeles. So the population swelled to 70,000 for an area only equipped to handle up to 30,000. The African Americans who had already been living on the avenue had managed to work themselves into something of a middle class, but all these newcomers that were coming to Bronzeville were 
poor. They were coming from poor areas. They were looked down on by the older community, and in many ways, rightfully so, because things got really out of control. Vices took over. Mm-hmm. There was gambling. There were drugs. There were gangsters. One four-area block of Bronzeville had a total of 47 liquor stores. Oh, boy. In 1945, Laura Long, the winner of Miss Bronzeville two years earlier, got arrested for stabbing a woman with a butcher knife. What? <laughs> yeah. Not Laura Long. <laughs> Laura Long. Laura Long. Please. What will your superhero boyfriend think? She's a superhero. There was TB. There were STDs. There was rape. There was a lot of prostitution. A lot of shoeshine parlors were fronts for prostitution rings. There was prostitution on the rest of the avenue also. Yeah. But the pimps down by the Dunbar were very flamboyant and they were kind of, they were almost respectable. Okay. They were always perfectly dressed. They had nice cars. They had nice hair. The Bronzeville pimps were just thugs. (laughs) They would beat their women. I don't know if you knew this, but it's said that a good pimp doesn't need to follow his women around. But in Bronzeville, if you you saw a prostitute her pimps were not far behind within arm's reach within arm within fists reach (laughs) (laughs) one positive that did come out of this though was a new youth that wasn't content to live under racial restrictions Mm -hmm. and they had no attachment to the way things used to be like the older community did so they were radical and the uh, and totally tubular (laughs) and often they were unnecessarily violent but they were trying to make a point yeah chester himes wrote about these people in if he hollers let him go he said that the youth in bronzeville wouldn't even drink milk from a white cow (laughs) imagine them yelling at cows (laughs) what do you got against me honky cow (laughs) cow. so they called for equal pay rights and they joined up with the mexicans during the zoot suit riots oh yeah but that just scared white people even more and (laughs) it made a lot of the clubs revert back to white only policies you're talking about the clubs that the police were beating everybody with yeah this old bessie's only for (laughs) in 1945 the japanese people started coming back and by 1946 bronzeville was imagine coming back yeah like uh, what'd you guys do? <laughs> Why is the pavement squirming? <laughs> so now, in addition to 70,000 black people living there, there was now an extra 15,000 Japanese people living there. And the California Eagle was sort of urging people to help the Japanese assimilate and yeah. g- get back. Get back, yeah. And the area, it just they just sort of spread out and they went down the avenue. So anyway, music was always a big part of the African-American community. Is that right? The I didn't f- know. The first African-Americans known to perform on stage in L.A. was the Beck family of Colonel James Alec, his wife Lou, and their daughter Pearl. They were singing evangelists Uh in the 1890s, and they first performed on Fifth Street near Hill in a place that would go on to become the Philharmonic Auditorium. Unfortunately, no black people were allowed inside to watch. So in 1910, 30% of all black workers in the city were musicians. And in 1940, 22.8%. And with all the prosperity during World War II, people had a lot of extra money to spend in clubs. Greg? Looking into Central Avenue, I found out that there was much more than just jazz happening. Mm -hmm. Jazz was definitely the most prominent attraction since it was, you know, the most popular at the time. But you also had R&B going on. You had songs and dance routines you had comedy going on there was the blues happening there was reviews shake dancing was going on vaudeville was going on but over the years central avenue has really been known for the jazz that came out of it in its heyday why isn't it known for the shake dancing that's more of a long beach thing all right (laughs) for really only covering music and venues i felt completely overwhelmed when i started to tackle this i had no idea what we were getting ourselves into so much 
it's so there's much. so much I, we were both crying the whole time <laughs> when i was reading when i was just reading there was at least two attempts to create like a, a timeline like to just map out a timeline and i was just like oh, i don't know what's everybody's doing everything all the time because <laughs> kind of like jazz kind of like, <laughs> i just don't get it my whole timeline was scat it was all scat and bebop so scat as in animal droppings yeah animal animal you wish it was animal droppings it's people <laughs> droppings i tried to concentrate on area specifics and stories that i thought were interesting so i'm not going to spend too much time explaining names and their importance which i feel kind of guilty about but i'm hoping we can spotlight certain la jazz performers later on yeah i'm not going to spend a lot of time going over people i'm not going to talk about the history of dizzy galepsy i'm just gonna galepsy you're not even gonna take the time to learn his name listen dizzy g <laughs> the Diz. Kenny G's brother. Kenny G's brother. <laughs> Kenny Gillespie. <laughs> Kenny Gillespie. Many say that the West Coast jazz sound is very influenced by the New Orleans jazz sound, which was full of swing and improvisation. Nolens. Nolens, of course, uh, with all due respect. West Coast jazz, or cool jazz, as it was later known, is very flowy and relaxing, which we'll get into how musicians feel about that label a little <laughs> later. But early New Orleans and West Coast do have some layover. It's probably true what they say about the influence due to the fact that a lot of early musicians from the other other LA, being Louisiana, migrated west after the First World War. They got confused. It's not as hot as it should be. <laughs> Where are all the crawfish? I could swim in this water. <laughs> Before the big move occurred, however, many cite that the first LA jazz band was the Black and Tan Jazz Orchestra, who were playing oh. the Cadillac Club as early as 1916. The Cadillac Club, which I'm pretty sure is the same as a Cadillac Cafe, I found like both names popping up, was at 553 South Central Avenue, which was one of the earliest jazz spots on Central Avenue. What Central Avenue? Listen. Don't throw me with questions, you know that. The Black and Tan Orchestra were originally from Texas, and they were described as a 10-piece cakewalk and ragtime brass band, <laughs> which I love cakewalking thrown in the description cake of that. Walk. I believe upon their arrival in California, they cut the 10-piece down to a quintet and began rearranging their sound and style, so they started filling the environment a little more and playing according to that, which I don't have no idea how musicians do that how they fill an area out they're like yeah no no we need we, we need one less chorus <laughs> they were popular as a live band as popular as the other two jazz giants making sounds around the time which was kid ori and jelly roll morton i believe the major distinction was that kid ori and morton were sort of a little more well known when they came to los angeles and the black yeah. and tan orchestra became popular here for the first time and they also were never recorded which is a damn shame which i don't know they could have been awful i don't know what do i care yeah um, wait, wait, don't put them on this pedestal yeah no the only black and tan i like is when you get some peanut butter and you put some chocolate on it isn't that what those are yeah that's exactly what they're talking about <laughs> i liked it when it was a 10 piece <laughs> jolly will morton <laughs> another food i love to eat <laughs> came to los angeles from nolens mm-hmm. around 1917 although many say that he was here scouting the scene since 1909 ask why they call him jelly roll daniel i refuse to ask, ask what why the, they call ask him what jelly that roll. alludes to i do not want a phallus and maybe he a thought, horribly disfigured phallus? Is that what you want to hear? His real name was Fernadan, which must have been too vagina for him. <laughs> his real name was Fernadan, though. If you're wondering Jelly Roll Morton's place in jazz history, he claimed to be the inventor of jazz. <laughs> Good for him. His most famous works include King Porter Stomp and the Wolverine Blues, which he co-wrote with two Central Avenue business owners, the Spike Brothers, Benjamin and John. Benjamin, like Morton, was very boastful. He claimed to be the world's greatest saxophone player. <laughs> Without ever even having played. <laughs> the Spike Brothers owned a record store at 1203 South Central Avenue, which became the centerpiece of LA Jazz for some time. They sold instruments as well as records, and they ran a record label and publishing company. The two brothers were essential not only for managing to record many of the New Orleans musicians who came to LA and were just passing through, they also supplied Central Avenue with instruments. They supplied all the musicians' instruments, so it was like a like a healthy resource where'd they get those from 
thievery, great train robberies. <laughs> <laughs> they made them. Uh, they're all windpipes. Remember Grave Digger Johnson? <laughs> Morton and his wife stayed for some years at 1013 and a half South Central Avenue, which he also used as a pimping office. Yep. Jolly Roll Classy Martin. pimps. Classy, classy pimps. pimps. Come on. No classy one's getting pimps. beaten. Big hats. Big hats. Big hats. Jolly War Morton was a Wearing pimp. furry dice around their neck. <laughs> Ridiculous size aviator glasses. <laughs> Canes with dinosaurs and amber <laughs> on top. He took a credential workshop on how to spin a cane. He was an accredited pimp. <laughs> part-time pimp, part-time piano player. He made most of his money from the Pacific Coastline, which was the name of a group of girls he pimped for. Oh, uh, as one friend put it, you didn't think Jolly got all his diamonds he wore on his garters with the $35 a week he makes making music, do you? Oh, no. He had a wife. <laughs> for shame. A wife and a mother. Tell those hoes to get back on the street. His wife was his mother. <laughs> he played a few clubs in the area, the Penny Dance Hall at 9th Street, the Cadillac Cafe, and the Murray's Cafe, which were both owned, I believe, at the same time by a man named Murray. Kid Ori was another knowledge transplant who came to LA looking for work around 1919. In the long run, California didn't really work for him, so he ended up going to Chicago, but he managed to make an impression on Central Avenue and even recorded Ori's Creole trombone with the Sunshine Record Company when he was here. When Kid Ori played the Cadillac, he wanted to promote the show the way you would in New Orleans. So what he did was he got an advertising truck, got the band aboard, piano and all, and rode down Central Avenue playing live from the train station to the front door of the Cadillac like a ragtime Pied Piper. Rats really did follow (laughs) Who would have thought they loved New Orleans jazz? Syncopated thing. I just, I gotta. I can really swing my tail to it. And that's how all the rats with the thing left thing. I talked about it too. The plague. The plague, thank you. It's called the plague. Its name was Milo. Well, they weren't working at Universal, of course. The Cadillac was a black and tan club, meaning it was integrated. The deal with that arrangement was that black men couldn't dance with white women, but they did anyways. (laughs) And they were raided and closed down for it. They managed to reopen the club, but again, the integrated dancing continued. And after they got raided for a second time, it closed for good. White women. (laughs) Ori returned to LA in the late 20s and gave up playing music for about a decade. He was rediscovered in the 40s, probably when jazz was going through like its third or fourth wave. And when that occurred, he had been doing odd jobs like sorting mail and raising chickens. He had a small revival, thanks to Orson Welles, who would on occasion come down to Central Avenue and just hang out. Welles was very into Dixieland jazz, which kind of explains that, and got Ori out of retirement by frequently featuring him on his radio broadcasts. Although he spent the last years of his life in Honolulu, Kid Ori is buried at the- <laughs> Boo-hoo. <laughs> Poor guy. It's just- it's all these pineapples. He's in a better place. <laughs> Inside joke. Although he spent the last few years of his life in Honolulu, like I just said, Kid Ori is buried at the Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, a few feet from Bella Lugosi. Scaring him every night. <laughs> Ori. Ori. Hey, kid. Hey, kid. You ever seen an undead body? <laughs> Good old Louis Armstrong. Satchmo himself lived in Culver City in the 30s, where he performed at the Cotton Club with another one of my favorite jazz performers, drummer and vibraphonist Lionel Hampton, who would play a very famous show with Benny Goodman that I'll get to later. Lionel Hampton's Flying Home suggested listening. Satchmo suggested listening everything. Spent most of his time in Los Angeles doing radio broadcasts and having small film cameras cameos as well as just performing at the cotton club was he on central avenue he stopped by at the dunbar he was busted for pot possession yeah. uh, not satchmo but then he soon bailed on los angeles of the living environment so he left duke allington also a dunbar frequent and his orchestra came down frequently to record and appear on the big screen they were uh, in a movie called black and tan which is a thing i've said way too much already <laughs> after spending some time in la he became inspired by the convergence of hollywood glamour and emerging civil rights activism and he wanted to create a show that reflected that combination of social environments so Allington created Jump for Joy which opened in July of 1945
1941 at the Mayan Theater on Olympic, a little bit off of Central Avenue, but I feel it's important, yeah. with an all-black cast. Strangely, it premiered the same day Jolly Roll Morton died. I Suspicious. Yeah, no, uh, that's no, no coincidence. No, it's all, track it down. I mean, we saw the crime here. Jump for Joy has a cast of 60 performers who Allenton refused to blacken up the way Hollywood <laughs> tended to do with this type of project and featured 30 songs and sketches altogether and dealt with many aspects of African-American culture from a tender love song, the brand Skin Girl and the Calico Gown to the controversial yet upbeat Passport from Georgia, which has references to lynching and the KKK in it. Passport from Georgia was pulled almost immediately from the show, but days later, Allenton insisted it be performed. Show ran until September of that year, 122 shows, and it was really successful. Allenton planned on taking Jump for Joy on a national tour to Broadway, but those plans were scrapped after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and many <laughs> cast members were drafted. Speaking of scraps, what are you doing for the war effort? All of my bubblegum wrappers. I'm turning it into a big ball. <laughs> Making a novel out of those Bazooka Joe comics. I'm sending it to the troops. Come on, for the troops. Back to Central Avenue, yeah? yeah. Let's do yeah, that. Please. Please, please, God. Please. Jefferson High School is very important. 1319 East 41st Street. It's just off of Central Avenue. Jefferson, or Jeff, as they called it, was a local Central Avenue high school. Many well-known Los Angeles musicians attended this school. Among them, Dexter Gordon. Dexter Gordon. Dexter Gordon? Dexter Gordon. Uh, Chico Hamilton, <laughs> Big J McNeely, Sonny Chris, Horace Tapscott, Frank Morgan, Roy Ayers. All of these talented players practice under one extraordinary teacher, Samuel Brown, Mr. B. I don't know if they call him that. Mr. B. Hey, Mr. B. So this rubs a little bit with what you were saying. Who were you saying the first teacher was? Bessie? Bessie Burke. Bessie Burke, that's right. Black Superman's girlfriend. Black, Black Superman's girlfriend. Or maybe superhero herself. Yeah, you don't know. She's a teacher. The first African-American high school teacher hired by Ali's school system was Samuel Brown. I'm thinking because because Black teachers were hired at an elementary level, but they couldn't work the high school levels, along, okay. especially along the Central Avenue Corridor. So I think he was the first one that broke that one. Okay. He's like a Peter Suhu, but for the Black community. Yeah. yeah. Music teacher teachers seem to be a big deal yeah it yeah. seemed I, I was reading I, I don't think I took note that a lot of people who weren't even like credentialed teachers at schools were just teaching jazz to each other they were just yeah. teaching like here sit down I'll teach you how to play the saxophone the most simplest instrument for a child the saxophone ask Lisa Simpson <laughs> she's always getting kicked out of class for playing it too well Although not a jazz musician, Dorothy Dandridge was a student at Jeff. First African-American to be nominated in an Academy Award for Best Actress for the movie Carmen Jones. Brown said in an interview about being hired, The oral exam committee was concerned about what I would do if I had white students in my class, how I would handle it. To which he replied, I'll just teach them, that's all. Nothing special. <laughs> that was a question someone asked. I was a professional to another professional. Brown was also known as the Count, not Count Basie, Count Brown. He the was Count like Kid Ori's grave mate? <laughs> A lot of counts. One, two, two graves. One, two, three, four <laughs> by four tempo. Keep the bass now. Brown was responsible for three school orchestras that performed around town, both for public and private events. So his students were now playing for money. <laughs> Formal classes in music were available at all levels of public education, both at Jefferson and another high school nearby called Jordan. The curriculum included courses in music theory, music appreciation, harmony, counterpoint, orchestra, band, and choir. There was a class on big band that was created, which I would have... I would just love to take it even though I don't play an instrument I just like to be there Brown said I didn't bring jazz in it was already there I just met it head on I put my arms around it <laughs> I salvaged it and tried to make it respectable because it was here to stay so he obviously saw the future of jazz which was really neat yeah because it's going so strong today you tell Winston Marcellus Take that, that. yeah. <laughs> Take that Marcellus <laughs> clan. 
For inspiring musicians, six period each day at Jeff in Bungalow 11 was jazz band class, which included writing, arranging, performing, as well as occasional visits by Avenue musicians. He had professional musicians stop by classes. <laughs> Nat King Cole came by. Lionel Hemp. Could you imagine the day? <laughs> All right, special guest today, Nat King Cole. <laughs> it was a question. Oh, everybody? Okay. Uh, Lionel Hampton came to consult students. Uh, he brought in famous composers. W.C. Handy stopped by one day. Really yeah. incredible. I know. That's a big deal. I mean, they're all big deals, yeah. but that's... That's like very weird. It's history, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of positive influence, you got the Logal 767 located five blocks from the Spike Brothers record store, which is, like, like I said, another great resource for musicians. A Local 767 was a musician's union, but because of segregation, there were two musician unions in our city. The Black Musician Union was Local 767, operated at 710 South Central under the dutiful Elmer Fain. It was formed in 1920 and served as a meeting place, a clearinghouse, and a rehearsal space for black musicians who were denied membership in the other musician's union, which was Local 47, which was housed in Hollywood uh, for the whites. I love present. More importantly, though, Local 767 was everyone's favorite hangout. They had barbecues there. If there was a parade on the avenue, the after party would be at the at the house. Help build the scene and create a stronger sense of community, which was really important because that's what drove the the jazz scene for a very long time. The 767 was another positive force on the avenue and was responsible for a great amount of employment for musicians. To be a successful musician in the area, you had to be a card-carrying member because next to talent, it was the most essential tool in the musician's toolkit. Union-sanctioned gigs were thoroughly rewarding. You were compensated well and your spot was protected. So it was very essential. I'm really liking reading how the community was built, mostly off positive reinforcement, which was really neat. The union head was a man by the name of James Petrillo, who was not black who was uh, the head of the union from 1940 to 1958 he was responsible for two separate recording bands that effectively shut down the market for new recordings to force a deal for higher royalties some say the bands hurt the music scene because it meant that some great bands that were passing through were never recorded and their sound is lost but the band was really successful in fighting for better pay for musicians so i really don't know let's talk about some of the other clubs now let's get us back on central please, avenue please i i provided positive reinforcement how's it all play out <laughs> now you're gonna hit us with a stick a hickory stick the biggest stick you've ever seen <laughs> you had dreamland hall eighth and spring one of the first black owned alley dance clubs off the central but one of the first the cadillac cafe and murray's cafe like i said was around 56 and central apparently both owned by a man named murray although i've read that the cadillac's owner was a guy named by uh rich baker so I must have just changed hands. But it got more popular when Rich Baker was the in charge. makeup artist? I think you're thinking of Rick Baker. Yeah, Rich Baker. Yeah, Rich Baker. Yeah, Richie <laughs> or, Rich Baker. Or that really wealthy donut chef. Is that the one? <laughs> Rich Baker, I get it now. That took me a minute. <laughs> it was a real thinker. You got the Lincoln Theater, mm-hmm. Central on 24th. That means I passed it a lot. And I had no <laughs> idea that it was anything. Yeah. The Lincoln Theater opened in... Well, ni- now it is. <laughs> <laughs> There's a perfectly good reason why you don't you have no information on it. The Lincoln Theater opened in 1927, became one of the more glamorous venues in the city had to offer. It could accommodate 2,100 seated guests. 2,100? Yeah, 2,100. Oh, I was, for some reason I was saying twenty one thousand. Many. <laughs> that's a big. That's a big difference. Yeah, it could fit everybody who was sleeping on the streets in Bronzeville could actually just go hang out at the Lincoln. Yeah, it wasn't so much a theater as a coliseum. <laughs> Many called the Lincoln the West Coast Apollo. Mm. The Lincoln Theater was popular during the '30s when local big bands and musicians performed there. When Lionel Hampton got his own big band, they performed there. As did Powerhouse Duke. Ellington's orchestra performed there. Old Powerhouse Duke. Old Powerhouse Duke, that's what they call them. During the week, local reviews and comedy act took to Sage. That's really neat. Within walking distance and attempts at rivaling the Lincoln were smaller venues like the Jungle Room, the Kentucky Club, and the Cabin Inn, which I'm very curious about, but I found very little information, only that they were walking distance. The Lincoln Theater is now a rundown church. 
<laughs> I'll get back to the Lincoln Theater later. Then the big one. You ready for it? Mm-hmm. Club Alabama. Ooh. Ooh, we like the sound of that. Con- Alabama. Alabama. It was connected to the uh, Dunbar Hotel, so it was incredibly popular because anybody who stopped by the Dunbar is going to, of course, check out what's going on in the Alabama. Can't have one without the other. This is the best. <laughs> Married with children. <laughs> Peg. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> Al didn't sound like uh, that. <laughs> Peg. Al. <laughs> what Al? Her name was Callie Bundy. Ooh, did I get Callie Bundy? Callie Bundy. Bundy. Right. Yeah. It was you that I got in a yeah, huge, was, like, oh, God, what was her name? <laughs> we look can't it remember up. all the names of the Bundys. <laughs> Who are we? Club Alabama was the best known of the night spots. It was the hottest. And I don't mean temperature-wise. I mean, there's a lot of people in there, so I probably got a hot. Everyone was probably drinking. The ritziest. The most decadent of all the Central Avenue clubs. Silk drapes. Colored Ooh. lights. Waitresses in scanty dresses. Oh it was once the focal point of jazz on the avenue. The crowds got dressed up. They served steak dinners. There was valet park. Now you got me. Was the valet parking free? Well, who would pay for that kind of thing? Not Patty I. McDaniel? <laughs> who took my Ford denim? <laughs> there was always a really great show featured, whether it was music, comedy, or showgirls. My ideal show, all three. Club Alabama. We know what your idea is. <laughs> it's very funny burlesque that also has a big band. <laughs> Club Alabama opened in the fall of 1928 and was run by Curtis Mosby, who was the former band leader drummer. At the Lincoln Theater, Mosby's Blues Blowers, Mosby's Blue Blow Blues Blowers provided the house big band that performed. The Blues Brothers, yeah, the Blues, the Blue, the Blues Blowers, which is not easy. They say it. You try say it. The Blues Brothers. One more time. The Blues Brothers Two Thousand. <laughs> Mosby's Blues Blowers. That does not sound right. Doesn't it? Sounds like blues I'm messing blowers. it up. Yeah. It sounds like I'm messing it up. <laughs> Mosby's Blues Blowers provided the house big band that performed for top entertainers like Duke Ellington. He's everywhere. The Duke. You can't get rid of the Duke. guy. That's why they call him the Duke. Because you can't get rid of him. We gotta duke it out. <laughs> yeah. The Alabama featured dancing and entertainment nightly, although I've heard Thursday nights was the night to be there. I don't really know why, but I kept reading, oh yeah, we all showed up on Thursday. <laughs> Alright. Payday, maybe. Mm. Names that came by, Lena Horn, Fats Waller, an impromptu performance by an audience member, Frank Sinatra. Whoa. I know. Johnny Otis, if you know big band music, Johnny Otis mm-hmm. started playing there and then he got bigger. I think he moved to Lincoln and then came back to the He Alabama. became Fats Waller. <laughs> He became Chubby Checker. <laughs> Celebrities, of course, would frequent there. If you're at the Dunbar and you're Joe Lewis or Jack Johnson, of course you're going to go hang out at the Alabama. Naturally. Naturally. Joe Lewis even used the Alabama to train in there when he was in Los Angeles. House bands featured at the different times. Child Mingus, local hero. Local boy. Art Pepper, local boy. Local hero. <laughs> Dexter, Gord- Dexter Gordon. Local disgrace. <laughs> Curtis Mosby, who was the owner, was a really curious figure in this scene. He owned and operated the ritziest nightclub on the avenue. He was the honorary mayor of Central Avenue for a while. He bridged the gap between two generations of black music. He claimed to have many talents. He was a drummer and a band leader, but he also said he was a composer. But many have challenged this, saying that he never, they never actually saw him perform, really, or they never really saw anything he wrote. Lionel Hampton said any time that there was a moment for Mosby to play the drums, that he'd just have Hampton do it. His business savvy was questionable as well. By all accounts, he was a little crooked. He owed a lot of people money. He was paying people under the table, which was a no-no, so the union went after him. So the musicians had to go to the union to collect what Mosby owed them. He declared bankruptcy in the 40s, but it was discovered around this time that he hid his part of the ownerships of the Alabama from creditors and bankruptcy courts, so he had to plead guilty to that. Mosby had to serve two years in jails for tax evasion, and without skipping a beat, his brother Esvin... Always the musician. Always the musician. Never skipping a beat. His brother Esvin, who we'll get to, took over as honorary mayor of Central Avenue right away. He was now the Mosby that got to ride the horse during the parades. (laughs) Club Congo, same block as the Alabama and the Dunbar, was another option for... 
middle class people if they wanted a nice affordable night on town <laughs> the downbeat which is a really uh, another really popular one two doors past the Alabama three doors past Dunbar 4201 South Central Avenue the downbeat was okay let me describe it for you long narrow rectangular hmm. you like it no a lot of corners. I feel like my eyes are in danger. Some say it was their favorite place to play That's because four corners. I don't have four By eyes. By definition, me twice. Yeah. A lot of musicians say it was their favorite place to perform because of the layout of the room. Because it concentrated everyone's focus on the music. Because the bandstand was in the middle, so you had three sides watching you. The fourth side was the bar, but the bar had a mirror to it. So if you were getting drunk at the bar and you didn't want to pay attention to the music, you still had to look in the mirror. Get a good look at yourself. See what you're doing. Lazy alcoholics. <laughs> Another hometown hero, Howard McGee. His bebop band started there in 1945. They were like the first modern jazz ensemble on the west coast predating the more herald arrival of Parker and Gillespie which would come that same Dizzy year G? Dizzy G yeah McGee became really close with Charlie Parker when he arrived here but McGee had already been experimenting with bebop before the sound was popularized they, they didn't call it bebop but they were already starting to get into something that was improvisational still talking about the downbeat Charles Mingus and Buddy Collette premiere their short lived septet group the stars of swing perhaps the most important unrecorded jazz band in the west coast history the recordings are lost but the group is said to be very advanced as far as their music went what i read about the stars of swing was they had no leader and in a good way like there was they just whoever felt like oh and they went whatever that meant music stuff you know jazz boys oh wow blah blah stop 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 <laughs> a frequent to the downbeat was ali mob boss mickey cohen Ooh, how is this baby the, is this the first time we brought up mickey cohen no uh i i kind of feel like it is i i feel like there's a few things in Here. this in this episode that we're like we're introducing these yeah. characters that are gonna I think I mentioned him later. when I mentioned the drunk tank at the maybe Lincolnites jail, but that's it though. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe during the tunnels when we were talking oh, about the tunnels. Yeah, I think we, yeah I think he did. More than just a jazz fan, Mickey Cohen. His signature was at the bottom of the checks that the band leaders got. Cohen and his little busy little mobster hands were toiling <laughs> with various nightclubs, moving liquor and showgirls around the town for various <laughs> doings in the same bottles. <laughs> I need you girls to stack up by the, by the 12 some. Turn to liquid, all of you. <laughs> I'm sure he said that a lot to them. You liking that? No. <laughs> Across the street from the Alabama was the last word. 4206 South Central Avenue. It was more modest than the Alabama, and that was sort of the appeal about it. <laughs> Their demographic was sophisticated crowd. It featured blues and jazz, and it was run by Esvin Mosby. Of the Mosby Blues Brothers? Yeah, yeah, he's one of the blues blowers. He was now the honorary mayor of Central Avenue, and he worked at the last word across the street. So aside from Central Avenue, I have to talk about this event that happened that's really important. I'm going to take you all the way to Vermont and 3rd. Oh, no. What is now Koreatown. The Palomar Ballroom was a beautiful music hall. It's a Vons now. I used to go and buy soup A beautiful Vons. The best one. The swingingest Vons you've ever been to. (laughs) This side of the Mississippi. The uh, Palomar is indeed far from Central Avenue, but it deserves a mention because many say that this spot, August 21st, 1935, first time that swing music caught the attention of the public and went became a national phenomenon for huh. years to come. Swing music started on... It went viral? It went... Vo- it was, of course, led by the King of Swing himself, who he wasn't called that yet, Benny Goodman. Hmm. He'd been touring the country with his orchestra and not really doing that well. A non-black musician. <laughs> I see you give him a special segment. I wouldn't have said it if I hadn't gone to that Vaughn's. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, he'd been touring the country with the orchestra, trying to get swing off the ground, and no one was really liking it. They were bombing in New York and Chicago. A lot of bookers were saying that people weren't liking the new sound, that audiences wanted something sweeter. Discouraged, they entered LA, not really expecting much to go well. They didn't really think much of the West. 
They were booked at the Palomar for three weeks to play for three weeks, and they entered into that show with new material, kind of cautiously playing stock arrangements to entertain. It was drummer Gene Krupa. If we're gonna die, Benny, let's die playing the stuff that we want to play. <laughs> Goodman agreed. <laughs> and I don't know if you're going to that or. <laughs> No, not. Die, he did. <laughs> Die, indeed, he did. It's very funny. I love that we laugh at dead people. Goodman agreed. Just musicians. <laughs> Buddy Holly, what a joke. Big popper. That's not what I like. <laughs> Goodman agreed with whatever Gene Krupa said before, and they ditched the stock arrangements for some swing arrangements. And as soon as Bunny Berrigan began trumpeting out solos from Fletcher Henderson tunes like King Porter Sw- uh, Stomp Swamp, King Porter Swamp, <laughs> the Palomar went insane. People were dancing and applauding. Many people just stood close to the band to watch them play this electrified sound, which was new to them. The crowd was drawn in because of the radio. Now, earlier that year, they had done a radio show called Let's Dance. But the thing about that was they were the third orchestra to play and they came on really late but because of the time difference they came on and played their segment happened at nine o'clock so everybody heard it mm-hmm. so when benny goodman came to play the palmore everybody's waiting for him already <laughs> they already heard swing and they loved it but the end of that tour he had a new moniker like i mentioned already the king of swing uh-huh. swing was a national phenomenon because of that everything that happened at third in vermont so, you know, next time you go over that Vons on 3rd of a month, why don't you say, where's Benny Goodman? I'll say, who are you talking about? But the same Spanish. The Palomar Ballroom went up in flames in October of 1939. That's the second fire tonight. Yeah. Fire purifies all. Another <laughs> sacrifice. There's a lot of other clubs. I'm going to mention their names, but I couldn't really find too much about them. The Brown Bomber, which was named after Joe Lewis. The Dolphins yeah, Hollywood. Yeah, I read he owned a club. Yeah, the Brown Bomber. Yeah. The Bird in the Basket. The Ritz. Glenn's Back Room. Casablanca. The Cobra Room, which hosted jam sessions. Jack's Basket Room, where you could find Dexter Gordon and Ward Elkray dueling sax phones hmm. which must have been you know whatever there was the paradise club the atlantic club the elks hall at 4016 south central avenue didn't have great acoustics but they did accommodate a large crowd which you know you'd see like um count basie there you'd see big jake mcneely there i like that the names keep popping up usually that would annoy me but it just means that people were moving the problem with this is the same one why we can't do like the comedy scene in la because there's no static thing that's <laughs> happening like everyone's just like hey, he was here then he was here then it was here and it was funny and it might have been funny and it was here and it was here but hey we're still not discounting a comedy scene episode <laughs> that won't stop us the 5-4 ballroom which was 308 west 54th street in 54th south, 54th built in 1922 for whites who lived in south central the 5-4 became a cultural mecca for the black community around world war ii by which time the area had changed radically a uh, nat king cole played there as well as fats domino bb king dizzy ray charles bb uh, king yeah bb king he didn't huh. live here but he played there huh. And I don't care. Uh, Ray Charles broadcast a TV program from there in the 60s. It was still operating as late as 1968. Located on the second floor, the 5-4 was stored in the early 90s as a blues room, 5-4 blues room, in hopes that it would return to its former glory. But it was foreclosed by the bank in the late 90s, so now just it's just there empty. In the 1940s, something started called Jazz at the Philharmonic, J-A-T-P. It started in 44 at the downtown Philharmonic Auditorium near Pershing Square, which since then been torn down, by a jazz fan and young film editor, Norman Granz. It was the first concert ever give first-class treatment to jazz musicians. By the 50s, the JATP concerts, which featured outstanding performances that are now all preserved on vinyl, were being produced at concert halls around the world, places like Europe, Australia, Japan, are started here. I'm going to take our listeners back to Bronzeville. You got us out of Bronzeville? I'm going to drag them back. That stinking hole. Once everyone was established and everybody was already there setting up business, legal and otherwise, music scene started to open up there. You had places like the Finale Club, which featured some of the best jazz one can hear in Southern California. and was run by Howard McGee, who I mentioned before. It was near First and San Pedro. Tap dancer Foster Johnson presided over the Finale Club. A show started at midnight with liquor provided illegally, of course. You also had exotic dancers. You had comics. Howard McGee's house band worked all night long. They drew 
through and not only Central Avenue Nighthawks, but Hollywood folk as well. You can go and see Judy Carlin hanging out. There was a place called Chef's Playhouse, which was one of the breakfast clubs. I'm not talking to them about the John Hughes film, which I have a little tolerance for. A <laughs> breakfast club was a club that operated all night long until the morning hours. until uh, Breakfast hours. Yeah, breakfast hours when breakfast is traditionally served because that had to do with the factories that ran all night. You know, uh, you had men coming in and out, so there was no real clear arrangement of hours. New when one day started and the next exactly. started. Before it was Shep's Playhouse, though, it was a Japanese restaurant called Kawafuku. <laughs> Shep's Playhouse was a smaller place, so smaller bands could play in the first floor bar and upstairs if you had a more elaborate stage shows, the kind that produced by like uh, Leonard Reed or Foster Johnson, the tap dancer. There were big band orchestras, there were dancing girls, legendary bluesmen T-Bone Walker started playing Shep's early in his career. In 1944, trumpeter composer Gerald Wilson started a band to provide music for Shep's. The Playhouse was really popular. It was a place to see and to be seen. Judy Garland, I mentioned her already. When the Japanese citizens returned to their area of business and living and such, Kawafuku- She screamed. The Kawafuku restaurant was reclaimed, of course, and became notable for introducing sushi to American eateries in the 60s. Huh. I will mention that the longest-running business from Bronzeville era was owned by James Hodge, who had opened a newspaper stand on the corner of First and San Pedro in uh, 1942, and it lasted till the 80s. Let's start talking about the boys, yeah? Oh, oh yeah. Now we're back in town, because uh, Bronzeville's atrocious. We have to get out of there. <laughs> Art Tatum, the nearly blind piano player who many call a prodigy, was a long-time LA resident. Tatum was known to sit at any available piano and Avenue with a case of Pep's Blue Ribbon and began playing swing for hours. One of the spots that Tatum would hit up was Ivy's Chicken Shack, which was a small eatery at 1105 East Vernon Avenue, just east of Central Avenue. The Ivy of Ivy's Chicken Shack was vocalist Ivy Anderson, who performed with Duke Allenton for over 10 years. Did Keep you know about this? Keep them frying. Keep them frying. <laughs> she had a number of hit records of the day with Duke Allenton. A string of illnesses kept Ivy from performing for so long, so she opened up a restaurant to accommodate the growing music scene. Huh. A number of musicians, our Tatum hung out there, Charles Brown, Good grief. <laughs> when playing for customers while it's the mornings. Uh, Anderson lived off of the Avenue, 724. Charles Brown. <laughs> he tried to reinvent himself. <laughs> she lived right off the Avenue, 724 East 52nd Place, which was just walking distance to her chicken shack, which sounds weird. Her restaurant, please, with all due respect. Her block, listed as 52nd Place Historic District, is listed on the National Registry of Historic Places. Good for her. Huh. She made it. The um, first chicken shack to me. <laughs> <laughs> Ethel Waters, who was a blues and jazz singer she once lived in a victorian house at 1910 harvard boulevard near washington boulevard it's now painted white with a light green trim it was then known as the sugar hill district of la yeah sugar hill was also the first black exploitation zombie movie it had nothing to do with sugar hill in la though yeah. nat king cole who we already talked about once lived in a beautiful brick house at 401 mirrorfield road wait a brick brick house house that's mighty mighty <laughs> Well, I mean, the house is letting all hang out. So you said a brick house. Mighty, mighty. Letting it all hang out. (laughs) (laughs) He lived... <clears throat> Homeboy Nat King Cole lived in Hancock Park. Look at this guy. Hmm. Beautiful area. Yeah. 401 Mirrorfield Road, nowhere near Central Avenue. But before, Traitor. But before Cole the Crooner was a household name, he worked in gigs on Central Avenues with his troupe trying to make it big in Hollywood. He got his start at the 331 Club on Central Avenue and worked his way up. You know, it's interesting. 331 was the address of Biddy Mason's 
place. Really? I wonder if that's a reference to that. It might be because I couldn't find too much about the third 331 Club other than he started there. Just as likely as anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe perhaps more likely. When he became successful, his two biggest hits were Route 66 and Unforgettable, both recorded at Capitol Records, LA. And Nat King Cole and Lionel Hampton are both featured playing a boogie-woogie foxtrot number called Central Avenue Breakdown, hmm. meant to capture the excitement of Central Avenue seen as it was reaching its peak. He's now buried at the Forest Lawn in Glendale with W.C. Fields. Benny Carter moved to... W.C. Fields just passed out dead in one of the graves. (laughs) It's actually the mayor's grave. I brought him roses and I fell in. Oh, no. (laughs) I figured, wide as a mouth. Now it's better than any time. (laughs) Benny Carter moved to L.A. in 1943, and he got a huge break when he had the opportunity to compose the score for the film Stormy Weather with Bill Bojangles Robinson, which Mm. is hard for me to say. (laughs) Lena Horton's also in that. Although now it's seen as very racially insensitive compared to Jump for Joy. Stormy Weather has some really great performances. Is Cap Calloway's in it. I like to say Cap Calloway's name as flamboyantly as possible because in my head he looks like Little Richard. His biggest it's not hit, just your head. <laughs> his biggest hit came with Cow Cow Boogie, which was a novelty tune for a very racist cartoon that I believe Walter Lance did of uh, I believe Woody Woodpecker. Huh. Consult episode meekly go round broke down. The cartoon is atrocious, but the song is really neat. <laughs> Other folks that have to be mentioned, their careers are like I said, way too immense to even start here. But they all hometown guys. Charles Mingus was raised and Watts, an incredible bass player, great band leader, Dexter Gordon. Dexter Gordon grew up in Los Angeles. He was taught by Samuel Brown and all. Dexter's father was a doctor among his patients, Lionel Hampton, Duke Ellington. Hmm. Daddy, what's wrong with them? Tell me their secrets. Art Pepper, saxophonist who was born in Gardena, found himself stuck with the West Coast cool jazz label, which he fought. I can't say anything worthy of Art Pepper, but look at his really, really great autobiography, which is one of like the first things I read all the way through called Straight Life. I do have one story, though. I think I told you this just in passing before we ever started the podcast when we would just tell each other stories <laughs> that interest us. When we wouldn't record all the stories we <laughs> tell each other. And they took even longer than this. <laughs> one story I recall from his uh, autobiography, Art Pepper used to live in Echo Park on what is the steepest street in Los Angeles, Fargo Street, which is where I was raised. Uh, William Claxton even took a photo of him walking up Fargo carrying his sex, smiling miserably because he was dope sick. <laughs> he lived there with his wife and both the Peppers were heroin addicts. Hmm. When she overdosed, Art called 911, but the ambulance couldn't make it up Fargo and park. <sighs> So the ambulance drivers had to get out with a gurney and all the equipment and run up Fargo to get her. How is that possible? (laughs) Gravity was not on their side on that one. (laughs) On the other side of that hill, in the, I believe, the late 80s, the hillside stranglers would leave a body in the trunk of a car within city skyline. And on the other side of that hill, I was growing up. (laughs) In the trunk of a car. (laughs) In the trunk of a car, coincidentally. It was a Ford Denim. Chet Baker was another troubled drug addict and jazz legend. Chet Baker didn't, wasn't born in L.A. He came to L.A. in the late 40s, early 50s. So he wasn't really based in Los Angeles in any concrete way, but the way he played and everything that kind of associated with him, he's very associated with the West Coast style, which I'm sure he didn't like either. Another one of my favorites, Percy Mayfield, a really great blues singer, moved to Los Angeles in 1942. He wrote and composed songs for almost 10 years before he got his big hit, Please Send Me Someone to Love. If you haven't heard it, suggested listening. <laughs> Required listening. Required listening. He was starting to get really noticed in the music scene, but a car accident sidelined his career for a long time. He was left with this, he has this huge gash on his forehead. So he started shying away from performing, but he kept writing. Like Harry Potter. A little bit like Harry Potter, but more magical more like yeah more magical <laughs> i mean if it's more magical because ray charles recorded one of his songs hit the road jack and it became huge successful so he kept writing for ray charles that truly is a magical <laughs> <laughs> life so let's talk a little bit about the bird charlie parker the, the bird junkie. is the word <laughs> bird is the word <laughs> charlie parker's the word the genius junkie the bird charlie parker was welcomed to la with open arms by young modern jazz practitioners like penis hampton hawes howard mcgee wait a minute Oh, okay. I thought you said something else, and I think you might have, but 
Hampton Hawes. His title. Cocky Hampton Hawes. I mean, when he was coming to town, they were very happy, and they hung out with him a lot. They learned things, but he was also soaked in heroin. Charlie Parker hated Los Angeles with a Faulkner-like passion. He once said, I can't tell you how much I yearn for New York. And Dizzy and Charlie were invited by Billy Bird to do a two-month stint at the Billy Burke's Club in Hollywood. So they boarded a train in December of 1945. For Charlie Parker, the two-month gig turned into a year and a half of hellish self-destruction while managing to somehow perform and record. How'd we miss him in the forgotten... <laughs> or not the forgotten for the visitors to LA. That would have been a good one. Yeah. During his oh, stay well. in Los Angeles... Oh, well... <laughs> I'll, I'll just do his entire segment now. <laughs> During his stay in Los Angeles, it was all highs and lows. He recorded some of his best music here. Night in Tunisia was recorded here in LA. Really? Yeah. Uh, he also went through really... Was recording in Tunisia? <laughs> you know, part of me thought it was too. <laughs> uh, he also went through, a, of course, really brutal heroin withdrawals and a visit to Camarillo, which we'll talk about. If you've read that first line in you Jack Kerouac's novel, you'll know what discount I'm jackets? <laughs> <laughs> you want to go that really nice in and out <laughs> The Burlington outlet. <laughs> so they were invited as a quartet, but Gillespie brought five people instead of four. So it was Uh-oh. the Diz himself, Parker, bassist Ray Brown, drummer Al Haig, and uh, vibraphonist Milt Jackson. Dizzy did this because he knew Charlie Parker's habits and wanted to be able to fill the sound out should Parker not show up, which was a frequent <laughs> occurrence. The way F. Scott Fitzgerald and Faulkner drank, Charlie Parker did the same thing with heroin. Oh, but he also drank. <laughs> Sometimes like a gallon of cheap wine to himself he was also popping pills mm. on the train ride to los angeles when the train stopped to take on water somewhere in arizona charlie parker wandered off into the middle of the desert looking for a fix and they had to why like, do these people they <laughs> these geniuses <laughs> they somehow get lost in, in the, the desert, desert. <laughs> something about the desert so appealing to them <laughs> the prickly pears they had to talk him back onto the train it was another 20 hours to go when he arrived in la and admire informed the talented junkie that heroin was expensive and hard to come by in la but he'd manage there was something floating around Central Avenue called Mud, which was like low-grade opium with twigs and dirt still in it. Oh, God. But he eventually upgraded with the help of a man named Emery Bird. Bird and Bird. The birds of the word. That's in the- Two birds in one stone. Their law office. <laughs> and I can't wake them up. A lot of jazz fans probably are aware of Emery Bird without knowing it. For Emery Bird was also referred to as Moose the Mooch. The little, right. the title of one of Parker's classics. Huh. Parker went and named a song after Emery Bird because he had the best heroin in Los Angeles. Moose the Mooch, or Emery Bird, I'm sure as he preferred to be called, <laughs> was a former honors student and athletic star at Jefferson High School. Huh. And he became paralyzed by polio. I don't know. Whenever Bronzeville started with the 40s or 43, it kind of came into its own. He was working at a newsstand in Bronzeville, which was also used to sell records, which was also underneath both those things up front. (laughs) Emery the Mooch was dealing heroin, and Parker was so appreciative that not only did he name a song after him, which it would become very popular, Parker left him a tip. Here's a tip. Play the alto instead. <laughs> Parker signed over half of his royalties for his dial recordings to the dealer, whose address was switched to San Quentin State Prison by that time. <laughs> According to drummer Ray Porter, who drove Parker to the session for the recording of that, Parker started riding Mooch in the car on 35th and Maple and finished it when they got to Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood by the time they got the recording studio. One long... How much fast- traffic was there? That's what I kept thinking. <laughs> it's probably like nine I think, hours. Yeah, I mean, it was like 5.30. Yeah. I get, I'm not that impressed. <laughs> it's like two days. <laughs> bring a tent for that ride. So after Especially if you're on heroin. <laughs> you can't keep track of time went on in your heroin. <laughs> after their stint at Berg's, which was legendary in a good way, sometimes, well, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way, Dizzy left for New York in February of 1946, which was the allotted time he was meant. The bird stayed here. He stayed here because he cashed in his return ticket for heroin money. <laughs> 
He began recording with Ross Russell and trying to get something down on vinyl, but more importantly, just trying to get high all day. He recorded the dial sessions, which are really important in his collection during his time, which was between March of 46 and December of 47. Here's the thing about the dial sessions. The record shop owner, like Ross Russell, started dial records solely to record Charlie Parker while he was in Los Angeles. That's how big Charlie Parker was. <laughs> Russell managed to assemble top-notch talent for Parker's dial sessions. Howard McGee, who played trumpet, pianist Dodo Marmo- Marmarosa. That, that word again. <laughs> that... I say it really word. fast. It's making me hot. It's, it's, oh boy, I'm salivating. I hear that word? I hands clench up. <laughs> Dodo Marmarosa. Marmo, uh, he played piano. <laughs> Jimmy Bunn, bassist. Uh, Jimmy Bunn. Jim Bunn, B U N N. All right. Bassist Bob Kesterson and drummer Kesterson. Roy- <laughs> Kesterson. Did you say Kesterson? <laughs> and uh, drummer Roy Porter all jammed with Parker at Little Tokyo's like I said, semi-legal finale club, which trumpeter Howard McGee ran. He continued playing with McGee's group at the swing club and continued a descent into insane substance abuse. He eventually broke down during a series of recordings in July of that year, 46. He struggled to play really simple phrases on the song Max is Making Wax. During the recording of the song, he missed most of the first two bars of the first chorus of the track. When he finally did come in, he swayed wildly and once spun all the way around away from his microphone. The recordings document all too well the difficult that Bird was having playing while needing a fix. After working on his... Tootin' a snore. Salt and peanuts and heroin. (laughs) After working on these recordings, he went back to his room, I believe this was at the Civic Hotel in Bronzeville, Mm -hmm. passed out with a lit cigarette and set his hotel room on fire. Another fire. The third fire. He was found wandering the hall of his hotel and in the street half naked. When the LAPD came for him, he resisted their attempts to arrest him, you know, resisting arrest, and was clubbed and taken to the station. After spending 10 days in jail, he was committed to the California State Mental Hospital in Camarillo. Outlet Hospital. You can get your affordable health care there. <laughs> he stayed there for six months. Apparently, Parker received shock treatment while in Camarillo, and it was so bad that he almost bit off his tongue. Uh, I know. That's why awful. Why didn't they give him something to bite on? They read. learned from that. Like, put a saxophone read in his mouth. <laughs> he was hitting the notes. <laughs> while in Camarillo, Parker played saxophone in the hospital band. They performed a small bandstand on Saturday nights. He also passed the time by tending a lettuce patch. That's adorable. Yeah. His classic song, Relaxing at Camarillo, which is a, was about his time there. <laughs> Do you think that's... A, you yeah. think a veiled reference? <laughs> the veil. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. He met at Santa Barbara. <laughs> this was recorded in 47 on Parker's sober return to Los Angeles after his hospital stay. His dial sessions recordings upon his return are famous now. Some call them an indispensable part of his musical opus recorded. So that's good. It's good that something good came from all that heroin use. Parker, all that jazz. Hampton Hawes and Howard McGee helped nurse him back to health. Saxophonist Big J McNeely proudly recalls that he got his mom to wash Charlie Parker's laundry. My mom, can you believe it? A proud day. Proud day. Thanks to McGee, Bebop was already like a LA Keystone, but Parker gets credit for introducing the sound to the era, which isn't really fair. But I think really what happened was Parker's arrival in his most lucid moments helped refine their sounds and accents and taught Bebop players how to handle life offstage or how to not handle life offstage. His stay at Camarillo cleaned him up and he continued to play clubs in LA but started drinking really heavily to compensate and the same effect was pretty much taking place. I think December of 47 he returned to New York and fell off the wagon again. The bird returns to Los Angeles in 1952. He's been using and abusing again and his health is on the decline. Like before he was nursing his withdrawal pain with alcohol binges. So it's July 1952. An eccentric sculptor named Jihar 
Zorthian, who was an Armenian genocide survivor, invited Charlie Parker and his band to come play at his Altadena ranch, where he was having a party and asked Bird if he can perform with a band. His ranch was one of those, like, bohemian party spots where artists would go and intellectualize partying as if it was more than just a frat guys, but with wine instead of beer. <laughs> Zorthian met a drunk Parker through a sculptor friend, who was a female, and decided to haul up to his ranch and have more fun, quotes, which translated to skinny dipping and horseback riding. Parker get horseback, right? Oh, that would hurt. And the horse might like it, though. I'd like it if the horse liked it. Parker loved his time at the Zorthian Ranch and agreed that he would repay Zorthian by having a jam session for the party. Time to pay up was July 14th, a Monday, because it was an off day for the jazz clubs. Zorthian had a few stipulations. He wanted Parker and his band to start playing at 9.30. Charlie said fine. He said, none of your junkie friends are invited. Parker said fine. So, of course, the first people to arrive are Parker's junkie <laughs> buddies. Around midnight... The witching hour. The witching hour. Midnight. Not the witching hour. <laughs> Nighttime's the right time. Midnight's not the right time. Nighttime's the right time. Night and day, night and day, night and day. A pickup truck comes to the ranch carrying about six band members and a piano. No Charlie Parker. <laughs> and the crowd was already there waiting anxiously to see the bird. Is it just, the bird or bird? Just wheeled out a parakeet. I, I don't know. The, the bird. Bird. It might be bird. Oh, Birdman. That's who it is. Birdman! <laughs> the band as well thought Parker was already at the party, which is not a good sign. But because this was a regular occurrence, the band knew just just start without him. So they played for about an hour when Bird showed up about one in the morning. Sorthian was kind of peeved and was like, all right, get on stage, to which Bird responds, no, nah, I think I'd rather go swimming. <laughs> no. So they coaxed him to start performing and the party starts picking up and then the bird starts playing and a beautiful woman approaches Zorthian and Parker and said if Parker asked nicely, she would perform a strip tease for the crowd. Parker responded by getting on his knees and begging her, darling, please. <laughs> so Parker kicks into Embraceable You as this woman climbs on top a rocking horse that Zorthian himself had sculpted and painted and started to slowly, sensually take her clothes off. Strip tease, if you will. Which got the crowd going and they were shouting, take it off, take it off, take it off. How do I know that? Because it's recorded and you can hear it on YouTube. Oh god it's kind of weird this is a it's, weird it's a lot of laughing it's it's not yeah i whatever parker got, crying put it back on mom parker got so excited by the strip cheese that he dropped his pants <laughs> can you imagine he was probably playing with an erect pianist <laughs> he became a pianist that night <laughs> then zorthian took off he his shirt dropped his pants dropped his pet like by accident you dropped your oh i dropped my oh, pants oops oops wait the zorthian took off his shirt oh, and then about three quarters of the crowd followed what? suit what is that who who is that helping if he takes his shirt off <laughs> who's benefiting a naked people party oh no as charlie parker and his band perform <laughs> with charlie parker's pants being dropped yeah yeah somebody's girlfriend had mentioned that like he was playing and throwing his body back so his was like flopping around. This I sounds like I would a, hate being there. A dream I had when I. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's related to me, and I'm not supposed to be there. I, I mentioned this because it's the party is still talked about about amongst like jazz fans and stuff. I was very curious about it, so when I started reading about Charlie Parker on Central Avenue, I had to find out more. So I felt obligated to tell this story. <laughs> Bird died in uh, New York in 1955 from a bleeding ulcer and liver disease. The coroner looked at him and rounded the age of his body to be about 50 or 60. He was 34. <laughs> So bebop happens, of course. Swing is come and gone. Bebop is kind of faltering out. Taste and music were changing by the 60s. R&B and rock and roll, back when we were all still rolling, started to dominate the charts and jazz was just for aficionados. Jazz fans scattered across the county, but somehow they all ended up congregating in Hollywood, which was considerably more desirable than the dying Central Avenue because it was dying. <laughs> LA and Frisco's contribution to jazz and blues gets downplays because they kind of started late in the game. West Coast jazz has somehow become shorthand for a light, airy sound originated by white musicians working in the 50s. Yeah. Many musicians do not associate themselves with that title because it's essentially a put-down. <laughs> you would get pigeonholed if other artists or bookers thought you were a West Coast jazz player. The stigma 
stigma of West Coast jazz or cool jazz still holds today, apparently, and it's a very uncomfortable subject amongst California jazz performers. California, as Jal- they would call yeah, it. California is the place to be. Jazzafornia. <laughs> Coolifornia. But by many accounts, this connotation is false. If anything, the jazz that originated from Central Avenue and the West Coast in general tend to be more experimental and improvisational. They were influenced by New Orleans jazz, and they ha- kind of touched upon bebop before they even knew what they were doing it's the same thing that happened to the beach boys i think it's affected by the beach boys and the beach and the idea of the west coast and once you put west coast on anything you automatically put something in shorts you know <laughs> if you put charlie parker in the west coast you don't have anything you definitely don't have pants <laughs> many claim that they were so experimental and improvisational that they were never recorded and barely documented mm. but like everything else the, the east coast likes to claim that los angeles has no culture or intellectualism there wasn't many music writers either covering central avenue jazz so there's no intellectualizing the happenings that happen on the set of town. There's no like processing and like building up of legend and myth. So there's no there's nobody documenting and slowly seeing progression. It's just like, well, all this stuff happened. We have some record of it, but nobody's really paying attention. Something else that didn't help was the fact that Miles Davis' Birth of the Cool was recorded here at Capitol Records. That record is associated, of course, with cool jazz players. Following the decline of Central Avenue, uh, the jazz scene moved out to Western Avenue between 30th and 40th Street. Had places like the Tiki Room, which was on Western and 37th, Club o- Oasis. Yeah, Disneyland. Club Oasis also sounds like it's at Disneyland. <laughs> and the California Club, which was on St. Andrew and Martin Luther King Boulevard. Uh, Western Avenue kept it up for a while, but it was a poor substitute for Central Avenue because there was no positive support built on it. The local 767 ended in 1953 with a merger of the Segregated Musicians Union, which was finalized. Focus went to the Hollywood office and the Central Avenue Musicians Union had to dissipate. Mm-hmm. They became local 47 after that. Hooray for integration, sure, but another gem in Central Avenue treasures was gone, so that's kind of a bummer. With Bebop and that scene, there was a lot of drugs, and because of the drugs, it was no longer favorable to be on Central Avenue. A lot of clubs were closing at the time. A lot of police officers were raiding everything. A lot of professional black men in the community were, they had the opportunity to move to other places and they took the opportunity. Samuel Brown was one of those. Mm-hmm. Moved to Pacific Palisades. A lot of guys were moving to Baldwin Hills or Beverly Hills. So a lot of positive reinforcement that they had before was gone. The electric trolley, the red car system ended around that time, which carried everybody all up and down Central Avenue. So their way to get around was gone now. For the whole downfall, things started going downfall. <laughs> Down autumn. <laughs> Once World War II ended, yeah. the factories didn't need as many workers. And the first to be let go were the black workers. Mm-hmm. So this meant people had less money to spend in clubs. The businesses started to dip. Right. The biggest change was it was a huge civil rights victory in Shelley versus Kramer, the case in 1948 that struck down the restrictive housing covenants. Oh, okay. So LA played a big part in this because there was an area, as you talked about, Sugar Hill, which was in West Adams, right next to East Adams, mm. which is where the old Chinese city market was. Yeah. So it was where rich white people lived. But in 1938, Norman Houston, yeah. who was the president of the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company, mm-hmm. he became the first black person to buy a house there. But he was so scared of what his angry white neighbors might do to him that he didn't even move in for three years. Oh my God, that's <laughs> so sad. <laughs> Put a dummy of himself there and see what <laughs> happened. So eventually the West Adams Heights Improvement Association sued the people who sold Houston the home, saying that it had violated the covenants. That incident and also a similar situation when Hattie McDaniel, she was prevented from buying a house there in 1945. These cases were used as evidence in the Shelley versus Kramer case. And the lawyer who had been fighting for McDaniel and who also testified in front of the Supreme Court during the actual Shelley versus Kramer case was Lauren Miller, who was the 
lady oh. who had bought the California Eagle in 1951, and she actually later went on to become a California Superior Court judge really? in 1963, which is why she had to sell the paper, and it failed a year later, and wow. that was the end of it. <laughs> so now, all of a sudden, the city was wide open yeah. to African Americans. The majority didn't have to just live on Central Avenue, mm-hmm. and it was, like you were saying, it was a good thing for African Americans, but it was really bad for Central yeah. Avenue. The first to leave were the richest people, yeah. and they went to Baldwin Hills, where white people got scared, and they fled to the <laughs> suburbs, and they sold their mansions to these new black owners for really cheap. Yeah. So this meant that a lot of wealth left the avenue. Mm-hmm. After that, anyone who could afford to leave left, yeah. and the area lost its swing. Yeah. And you know, it don't mean a thing. <laughs> Residents started spreading down to the traditionally white area of Compton, okay. where the ever-tolerant white people adopted the catchy slogan of, keep the Negroes north of 130th Street. I, you know, I can't see that as a song. Not as a shirt. <laughs> there were anti-black gangs. One of them was called the Spook Hunters wow. that formed around this time to just... Is that be- the movie with Bill Murray and uh, Harold Ramis? Yeah, Spook Hunters. Yeah, Spook Who Hunters. are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this isn't what I wanted. This is very much not what I wanted. I'm not into this. I'm not, so not into this. You always want to listen to Lionel Hampton? Oh, boy. <laughs> so Central Avenue, it became... It was a poor community. It, and it just got poorer. There was bitterness among the people left behind because the rich members of the community turned their backs and just abandoned them. And the elegance of the area started to fade. Like you were saying, in the 20s and 30s, they would dress up nice. They'd go to the Alabama. But then starting in the 40s with all the factory workers working all hours of the day, they just get off work and go straight to a club in their dungarees and... (laughs) And they're Ford Denims. (laughs) Again, the police cracked down. The city had a lot of crime in the late 40s. And the LAPD wanted to assert its dominance over the city and all the nightclubs and all these poor black people on Central Avenue. They were easy targets. So the police started. (laughs) We got to fill quotas down there, (laughs) especially after the Black Dahlia, which I think that's the first reference. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was kind of in that area that happened, too. Yeah. Norton and 40 something not uh, they, they did, it didn't help their case no yeah just yeah say that. you you were saying they, there was a lot of intermingling among white people coming down the white people that came down to central were either jazz fans or fans of black women <laughs> And they would come down to the Who's avenue. Not? <laughs> there was social and romantic mingling between white and black people, but political groups started to not like that sort of thing. Yeah. So the police started then harassing white people for hanging out with black people, and it made they tried to make people feel like it was wrong for a white person to be with a black person. Yeah. The final nail in the coffin was that musicians' unions mergers, and again, it seemed like a step in the right yeah. direction. It was not, because a lot of people were mistrustful because they saw it as just another way for white people to take jobs from black people. Right. It sort of lessened the sense of like a black cultural unity. Mm-hmm. So more tangibly, though, since there were already fewer clubs to play in on the avenue, now there was no employment agency on the avenue, and they had to get to Hollywood. How are they going to do that? Get into Ford Denim? With a Hattie McDaniel? I've been sitting on this trolley. It's not going anywhere for two days. I'm in San Pedro. I'm also in a warehouse. <laughs> so the black musicians were getting hired on the Sunset Strip now. And by the 60s, the music scene was just gone. Yeah, it no was done. Won. Once other hotels around town started to allow black guests, the importance of the Dunbar started to fade. Mm-hmm. So the Dunbar had been sold in 1936 to a Chicago businessman named James Nelson for $87,000. And I... 
read something about it might have been briefly owned in 1935 by the Father Divine cult, but I don't know. I, unconfirmed. Then Nelson died in 1952, and mm-hmm. his wife ran it for a little bit under the new name of King's Dunbar Hotel, but it was sold again in 1968 to Bernard Johnson, who opened up a museum of black L.A. history in it cool. until 1974 when it closed. Wow. <laughs> Completely. It was saved by being listed as uh, an historical monument by mm-hmm. the city September 4th, 1974, and then in January 19. 1976, it was put on the National Registry of Historic Perfect. Places. Perfect. When it was empty, it became a den of crime and drug dealing, oh, okay. and a, it was just in disrepair. But in 1990, it was reopened as low-income housing, but it got foreclosed on in 2008. But $14 million was spent in renovations by a company named Thomas Saffron oh. and Associates. And you think you're a big shot now, huh? I mean, you think I you you just think, walk? In? You think you can just throw money at every problem, huh? I bet that's what you think. You got fourteen million sitting around. <laughs> so then, in the is summer, Rochester here? In the, <laughs> is he still here? Is he still running? Is this still Rochester for mayor headquarters? In the summer of 2013, the Dunbar reopened as Dunbar Village Senior Housing with okay. 41 studio and one bedroom apartments, and the two surrounding buildings are now the Somerville Apartments with 42 low income. Awesome. apartments. So the sign that's up there is still the original sign from the 30s and there's like a slab of cracked sidewalk outside that still says Hotel Somerville, oh, which cool. is kind of cool. It's all part of a plan to get the area back on its feet. The restorations there won the Conservancy Preservation Award from the LA Conservancy in 2014. Last year there was a play called The Magnificent Dunbar Hotel about the glory days. Central Avenue Jazz Park is across the street yeah. from the Dunbar. They have a stage and a bunch of tile murals above it with scenes commemorating the area's jazz history. Mm-hmm. There's a big sculpture of a guitar and a saxophone at Vernon to pay tribute to the old scene. That's pretty cool. Those might come to life one day. There's a uh, Charles Mingus Youth Center somewhere. That's true, yeah. yeah. I think that's a, it's gotta be in Watts. I think it's in Watts, yeah. How could it not be? I would want it there. Watts? Watts? <laughs> so the Central Avenue Jazz Festival. Yes. It happens every July in front of the Dunbar. This year is gonna be the 19th consecutive year mm-hmm. on July 25th and, and 26th. Two-day event, yeah. Two-day event, yeah. It's two-thirds of a Woodstock. <laughs> the historic South Central or the Central Avenue Jazz Corridor is south of Washington, east of the 110, north of Vernon, and west of Alameda. Technically, the area is no longer known as South Central. The city officially changed its name in 2003 to South Los Angeles. Okay. okay. I, I, I kind of noticed that at some yeah, point. Yeah, I was like, I kept seeing South Los Angeles. Where's that? I'm going to South Central. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to the setting of all those NWA songs. I want the Snoop Dogg songs. I want to go to the, I want to go to there. <laughs> so they did it to try to give the area a fresh start because people had been incorrectly using the name South Central to describe pretty much anywhere where yeah. a lot of black people were living. And, and I think past Martin Luther King, which is like, nobody wants to go past that. <laughs> Greg's words. <laughs> it, it wasn't being used for the area that was technically South Central. So Mm -hmm. the name South Central developed sort of a racial connotation that was not always positive. No, not at all. Yeah, and having a negative brand made things harder to fix because people would just think, oh, that's that's South Central. It's just how it is. What can you do? So the name change rubbed a lot of people the wrong way though because people were proud of being from South Central. And on top of that, they knew a name change isn't going to fix any of the problems. So as time went on, population in South Central kept growing, getting more crowded, weren't as many jobs to go around. Mm -hmm. Gangs started to take over. There were the Watts riots in 1965, Rodney King, 1992. Mm-hmm. The area got really torn apart by that. Problems with drugs, poverty in the area, but it 
is better than it used to be. Crime's down. The area is more Latino nowadays than it is black, but in its time, Central Avenue was LA's Harlem, and the creative boom that was going on there, it happened about the same time as the Harlem Renaissance, but like you were saying, it's not really paid attention to or as well known. It's yeah. not as doc. It, like everything's sort of oral history. It's strange because uh, when you were mentioning novels, I could only think of two. I can think of Devil in the Blue Dress and yeah. that, and the but, first like chapter of, uh, <laughs> Raymond of yeah Raymond Chandler of that era. There's not a lot going on. No. What? Fiction wise, <laughs> fiction wise, there's not a lot going on. Depicting if he hollers, let him go. Let him go, which I, sh- I have to read now. Let's have a live reading <laughs> bonus episode. We can do it tonight. We've been going long enough. We we good. And that's <laughs> and that's everything. That's everything you'll ever need to know about Central <laughs> Avenue. I had no idea what this area was when you suggested it. I said that's stupid. I thought I knew where it was, and it turns out I don't. I know the area. I just it wasn't what I thought it, the area I thought it was. That's all. Duke that- Ellington doesn't live here anymore. Who are you, gentlemen? Is Ivy Anderson home? Get out of here. <laughs> All right. Keep them frying. <laughs> <laughs> Go out and listen to some jazz. Yeah, jazz festival. We'll see you guys there. We'll be there. We'll be there. We'll be there. We're also going to be running for mayor of, <laughs> of Central Avenue. If you get arrested, I'm taking it from you right away. <laughs> Scandal rocks. <laughs> if you like jazz, then you'll love iTunes reviews. <laughs> you can really just scat all over and leave five-star reviews. Tumblr. LAMeekly.tumblr.com. We post that every time we put a new episode up. Like us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. At LA Meekly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can email us. Uh, Meekly at gmail.com. Um, yeah. You star can buy ratings. LA Meekly brand inhalers. <laughs> we have LA Meekly orthopedic shoes if your feet, <laughs> if your club foot or anything. LA Meekly brand glasses tape to put your... <laughs> LA Meekly glasses back together. We have LA Meekly toupees for sales. Say you're thinning a little bit or a little bald. We also have LA Meekly brand weaponry. <laughs> we got LA Meekly brass knuckles that spell like LA Meekly on someone's skull. It'll leave the logo in their corneas. Anyway, we have bear traps. <laughs> they don't actually catch bears, though. Close it off. Hola. Yeah, do it. It's funny. That's our cue. And that has also been L.A. Meekly cruising down Central Avenue in a Ford Denim since 2013. (laughs) And we're out. We're out. It's a long one. Mr. Grinch. Grinch.